everybody welcome to another edition of tangentially speaking this is the much anticipated conversation uh andrew and i had with dennis mckenna uh when he was in town here recently for um to to give a, a talk it was great it was really cool to be able to hang out with dennis um for a couple of evenings and uh we went out and had some kava uh <clears throat> which was interesting made my tongue numb I didn't really get any other effect from it, but um, fantastic to be able to just uh, shoot the shit with somebody who uh, is so insightful about consciousness, about uh, the human interactions with plants. I and mean, he's definitely one of the the leading ethnobotanists on the planet right now. So it was a real honor for us to be able to to hang out and chat with him for a while. It's been an interesting couple of days since I released the the last uh, podcast episode, a sort of special episode where I read the letter from the person who um, was dealing with the end-of-life issues with his or her mother. Uh, I just sort of, you know, I got that letter on my car and read it and was so moved by it and, you know, saw that it was the intention was that I share it with you, and so I did. And um, I didn't think about it much, but the first thing that happened was I started getting lots of emails and, and tweets from people thanking me for sharing it. And um, and then I got a couple of uh, emails from people saying, you know, there are legal repercussions here you need to be careful of, and uh, you should think about this or that. And, and these weren't lawyers, but they were people who were concerned, and, and uh, they offered to, to consult with lawyers on my behalf, so they did. Uh, and, and just now, uh, Sunday, I, I got an email from someone saying that he'd spoken to a, a lawyer, and the lawyer's recommendation was that I save the letter and so if the police ever contacted me, I could give it to them. The problem is I've already thrown the letter away. So it went out with the recycling already. So um, there is no letter. It didn't occur to me that reading someone's letter could have any legal repercussions at all. So I just threw it in the same bag. I throw all my other crap in and out it went. So there you go. Um, you know, I hope I don't end up in the, the who's gal. But if I do, it'll give me a great opportunity to uh, to focus on my writing and, um, you know, the publicity around it will probably sell some books or T-shirts. Speaking of T-shirts, uh, you got those Civilized to Death shirts there. They're going fast. I've already placed a reorder with the, the good folks at uh, Shore Design T-shirts. Check them out, shoredesignt-shirts.com. But in the meantime, if you want to order civilized to death shirts um promoting a book that hasn't been written yet eh how's that for meta it's it's like those soccer teams you know real madrid makes a lot more money selling ronaldo t-shirts than they actually make from the the football um anyway t-shirts uh Sign copies of Sex at Dawn, whatever you want. It's at chrisryanphd.com. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Check them out, Squarespace. Super slick web design. You can do it yourself uh, with a lot of assistance from their template system, which is very slick. 
uh, go to squarespace.com. Uh, you got a seven, no, 14 day, sorry, 14 day free trial. You don't even have to enter a, a credit card or anything like that. You can just uh, screw around on their site there for 14 days. You got 24 uh, 7 customer service. Uh, their customer service, by the way, is based in the U.S. They're all in New York. Uh, Joe Rogan was out there. He met with them and uh, took a look around their facilities, and he said they're they're great. They're like nice people. You're giving jobs to uh, good old-fashioned Americans. and Well, I don't know how old-fashioned they are. They're in New York. They're probably subversive, you know, freaky, drinking handcrafted cocktails and things like that but hey they're american they're cool uh they're better than old-fashioned americans so you're giving good jobs to uh to good people and i I can tell you from personal experience they get back to you um very quickly with any questions you've got it's very user-friendly um set up you know you look at you go to the their website their homepage. And you can just see they've got it broken down into shops, photographers, bloggers, artists, restaurants, musicians, weddings, whatever kind of um, business you're in or site you want to get set up. They've they see you coming from way off. It's uh, it's inexpensive. And if you enter. What the hell do you have to enter? Oh, yeah. You enter sex at checkout. You get 10 percent off. In addition to everything else you're getting off. If you do a one-year thing, I think it's like eight bucks a month. It's really cheap. Um, And that includes, by the way, uh, your domain name. So if you've got a domain name that nobody's already taken, something original and strange, uh, they will register that for you as part of the package. So it's a pretty sweet deal, I've got to say. Squarespace.com. And uh, when you get to, you know, look around 14 days, as I said, you don't even have to enter a credit card and uh, enter sex at checkout for 10% off. All right. Uh, Our other new sponsor this week is Outdoor Tech, which is a company that specializes in uh, mountain tested portable power and wireless audio uh, designed for rugged terrain or the office. They offer free shipping. And if you use the code civilized, again, civilized, you get 10% off your order. Check these dudes out. They're really, they have smart quality stuff for anyone who likes being portable and wireless. Uh, They've got like a shock and water resistant power bank that you can take when you're hiking or camping or whatever. You charge up your your smartphone or a tablet. They also have um, wireless headphones that are really good. Uh, They've got all these adapters for Bluetooth devices brand new wireless speaker that i got it's a turtle shell uh 2.0 it's it's made from that like rubberized kind of plastic that feels really nice on your hands you know it just feels like quality this thing it's like if the swiss army knife people were designing a really nice speaker it looks really cool it sounds fantastic and it's made so you can like hang it from a tree if you're out camping somewhere. Um, the range on it's amazing. I the Bluetooth was like I had it at the other side of the apartment and it was picking up my phone perfectly. Um, really nice piece of equipment. Anyway, use the code Civilized to get 10% off. It's Outdoor Tech. 
Com. They've got all these like hand crank flashlights and, and really cool stuff. Um, and as always with this stuff uh, that I sponsor, if you order anything, please let me know what you think. Uh, you know, get in touch and, and let me know uh, what your experience is because uh, I don't want to steer anybody wrong. I really like the stuff. Um, so if you have other types of experience, I want to hear about it, good or bad. And finally, this podcast is brought to you by Audible, the perfect company for people who drive a lot and can't read but love books. Have somebody, have a pro read it to you. It's a pretty cool company and I like their sponsorship. Go to audibletrial.com slash dawn. And you get a 30-day free trial. You get a free audiobook that will stay with you. You keep it whether you uh, decide to, to continue the paying service after your 30 days or not. And they send us whatever it is, 15 bucks or something, whether you sign up or not. So it's a great way to try out uh, this service risk-free. Get yourself a free book and toss a few bucks our way if you're inclined. Um, I've been thinking recently um, about Alaska because I'm doing this companion podcast, um, Talking Out My Ass, which is um, I'm behind a paywall. I'm trying to monetize this a little bit, you know, make it uh, make it worth the time I put into it, which isn't easy. But um, that's one of the ways I'm trying to do it. So people have asked me to to tell my travel stories, things in my youth and you know, all the crazy shit that happened to me. So I started this second podcast called Talking Out My Ass, which you can find, um, I think if you just, it's just talkingoutmyass.com. If that doesn't work for you, just uh, go to uh, tangentiallyspeaking.com and that'll take you to the place where you can sign up for the premium service and that'll give you all the Talking Out My Ass episodes as well as archived uh, episodes of this. The last 20 are free, of course, uh, as always, but uh, if you're a new listener and you want to get into the archives or you want to uh, get into that sort of inner circle Talking Out My Ass thing and hear me talking about going to prison and working in a salmon cannery and... Um, I think the last one was uh, getting totally shit-faced on tequila. So this is 1983. Anyway, this is a long way of getting around to this uh, week's episode of, um, or this week's uh, promotion of Audible. Um, I'm going to play you another sample so you can get a a sense for what uh, the service is like. Uh, This one's from Into the Wild, the great John Krakauer book. It's from the introduction of the book. And you're going to get a sense of what Krakauer's voice is like in the book and uh, a bit about his relationship um, with the spirit of Chris McCandless, who's the the guy who uh, hitchhiked up to Alaska and and went into the wild and uh, died there. Um, I've got an interesting connection with the spirit of Chris McCandless as well because uh, four or five years before he did this, I did pretty much the same thing. Hitchhiked across America, met lots of people. I also was an intense, you know, young guy who who took the books I was reading very seriously. Not all of them, of course, but when something resonated with me, it... um, 
touched me as deeply as any living human ever had. And, uh, you know, I shared his passion and intensity and awkwardness and bravado and fear and a lot of things that um, people in their 20s experience. Um, And when I was in Alaska, I thought very seriously about buying some beans and rice and and um, just heading back into the woods and, you know, build a little lean-to somewhere and, uh, you know, have a rifle and try to try to go Walden. Um, you know, as in many other cases in my life, my uh, essential laziness probably saved me from doing something even stupider than the things I did end up doing. Um, so I didn't go into the wild. Uh, I uh, got close to it and looked at it and um, had some interesting brushes with it, but I I never actually entered it. All foreplay, no fucking in that case. So here's a few minutes of uh, the audio book from audibletrial.com slash sexatdawn. Go there and you can download this book or any book. I won't claim to be an impartial biographer. McCandless's strange tale struck a personal note that made a dispassionate rendering of the tragedy impossible. Through most of the book, I have tried, and largely succeeded, I think, to minimize my authorial presence. But let the reader be warned. I interrupt McCandless's story with fragments of a narrative drawn from my own youth. I do so in the hope that my experiences will throw some oblique light on the enigma of Chris McCandless. He was an extremely intense young man and possessed a streak of stubborn idealism that did not mesh readily with modern existence. Long captivated by the writing of Leo Tolstoy, McCandless particularly admired how the great novelist had forsaken a life of wealth and privilege to wander among the destitute. In college, McCandless began emulating Tolstoy's asceticism and moral rigor to a degree that first astonished and then alarmed those who were close to him. When the boy headed off into the Alaska bush, he entertained no illusions that he was trekking into a land of milk and honey. Peril, adversity, and Tolstoyan renunciation were precisely what he was seeking, and that is what he found in abundance. For most of the sixteen-week ordeal, nevertheless, McCandless more than held his own. Indeed, were it not for one or two seemingly insignificant blunders, he would have walked out of the woods in August 1992 as anonymously as he had walked into them in April. Instead, his innocent mistakes turned out to be pivotal and irreversible. His name became the stuff of tabloid headlines, and his bewildered family was left clutching the shards of a fierce and painful love. A surprising number of people have been affected by the story of Chris McCandless's life and death. In the weeks and months following the publication of the article in Outside, it generated more mail than any other article in the magazine's history. This correspondence, as one might expect, reflected sharply divergent points of view. Some readers admired the boy immensely for his courage and noble ideals. Others fulminated that he was a reckless idiot, a wacko, a narcissist who perished out of arrogance and stupidity, and was undeserving of the considerable media attention he received. My convictions should be apparent soon enough, but I will leave it to the reader to form his or her own opinion of Chris McCandless.
John Krakauer, Seattle, April 1995. Into the Wild. Chapter 1. The Alaska Interior. April 27, 1992. Greetings from Fairbanks. This is the last you shall hear from me, Wayne. Arrived here two days ago. It was very difficult to catch rides in the Yukon Territory, but I finally got here. Please return all mail I received to the sender. It might be a very long time before I return south. If this adventure proves fatal and you don't ever hear from me again, I want you to know you're a great man. I now walk into the wild. Alex. Postcard received by Wayne Westerberg in Carthage, South Dakota. Jim Gallion had driven four miles out of Fairbanks when he spotted the hitchhiker standing in the snow beside the road, thumb raised high, shivering in the gray Alaska dawn. He didn't appear to be very old, 18, maybe 19 at most. A rifle protruded from the young man's backpack, but he looked friendly enough. A hitchhiker with a Remington semi-automatic isn't the sort of thing that gives motorists pause in the 49th state. Gallion steered his truck onto the shoulder and told the kid to climb in. The hitchhiker swung his pack into the bed of the Ford and introduced himself as Alex. Alex, Gallion responded, fishing for a last name. Just Alex, the young man replied, pointedly rejecting the bait. Five feet seven or eight with a wiry build, he claimed to be 24 years old and said he was from South Dakota. He explained that he wanted a ride as far as the edge of Denali National Park, where he intended to walk deep into the bush and live off the land for a few months. Gallion, a Union electrician, was on his way to Anchorage, 240 miles beyond Denali, on the George Parks Highway. He told Alex he'd drop him off wherever he wanted. Alex's backpack looked as though it weighed only 25 or 30 pounds, which struck Gallion, an accomplished hunter and woodsman, as an improbably light load for a stay of several months in the backcountry especially so early in the spring. Now to bring this all back home, one of the things that I share with Chris McCandless, aside from having hitched up and down that, uh, that highway that they're talking about between Fairbanks and, and uh, Anchorage and Kenai many times, <clears throat> is, uh, as I said, that sort of, uh, you know, 20s, like, fuck it, I'm going you know, into the jungle, into the wild, into whatever. This week's guest, Dennis McKenna, has been into the wild in his 20s. And uh, there's a very famous book about that called True Hallucinations um, that uh, was written with his brother, Terrence McKenna, talking about their experience into the wild, uh, which changed many lives. Um, I, I think it's fair to say hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people have been introduced to the ideas of um, altered states of consciousness uh, and some other very freaky ideas <laughs> through that book and others. Uh, if you're not familiar with uh, Dennis and Terrence, Terrence was very famous. He died a few years ago from a brain tumor, um, sadly, quite young. And Dennis, his younger brother, um, very happily is is still with us and going strong and um, carries on the legacy that the the two brothers developed largely together and then separately. 
Dennis um, decided after their pivotal experience together in in the jungle um, in their early 20s that he was going to um, examine this fractured reality that he encountered through his experiences with um, with mushrooms with psilocybin um, through the lens of science uh, as well as personal experience so he went back to school studied uh, ethnobotany chemistry and um, became uh, a true scientist whereas his brother Terence decided that the experience that they'd had in the Amazon was um, a repudiation of science and showed that science really uh, was inadequate to explain the sorts of experiences and realities that he was interested in. So it, it formed uh, an interesting um, fissure between these two brothers who had been very close in most ways until then. Uh, you'll hear me talk a lot about the book. You'll hear me uh, complimenting Dennis on the book in our conversation. And I just want to say that is 100% um, sincere. It, it's a great book. I, I don't read much these days that isn't directly related to what I'm trying to write. So um, it's unusual for me to take time out to read something that's that I'm not going to be using in my own work. Um, but this was so good. I thought I would just skim it a little bit, you know, so I, I had some knowledge for the interview. But once I started, I couldn't put it down. I, I read the whole damn thing, put everything else on hold. It's that good. If you don't know who Dennis is, you don't know who Terrence is, it doesn't matter. It's an amazing, heartfelt, beautifully told story of two brothers growing up together, having some amazing experiences um, dancing on the edge of sanity and, uh, and the way they uh, live their lives after. That's enough from me. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dennis McKenna and get yourself a copy of his fantastic book, uh, Memoirs, uh, The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. I'm going to play you in with Society, by, sung by Eddie Vedder from the soundtrack to Into the Wild. It's a mystery to me We have agreed With which we have agreed And you think you have to want more than you Till you have it all, you won't be free Society, you're a crazy breed I hope you're not lonely without me All right, we're here uh, with uh, this week's special guest. I'm here with my podcast Power Bottom. Tony. Uh, Tony, also known as Andy, Andrew. Oi. 
Are you Andrew? Andrew? What's Andrew? Yes, I like Andrew. I think it's Andrew the power bottom with the umlauts over the over the u. <laughs> uh, uh, we're here with Dennis. McKenna. I'm happy to be here. Is what I am. Yeah. Okay. We're we're here with Dennis McKenna. I hope he's happy to be here too. Well, we, I am happy to be here. Well, we can check in later and see if you're still happy. We're still happy. Right. Yeah. So far, so good. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. It's well, a pleasure. Welcome. To be here. It's great to have you here. Uh, I'm just going to open my coffee. Um, anyway, so you came in last night from uh, Vancouver where you were doing an event up there. I was doing an event there, yep. And in here in Portland, you're doing the, uh, what is it called? Herb Stomp? Yeah, Herb, herb Stomp. Stomp. Herb Stomp. So later today. I guess we're, we're going to go stomp some herbs. Stomp some herbs, yeah. 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 <laughs> you got to stomp herbs every once in a while. They start advocating for their own rights and uh, they get uppity. And so you gotta, uh, we uppity. can't have that. We yeah. got to slap you, that down. You crack that down. Are, are we allowed to use the word uppity? Is that- <laughs> when referring to herbs, not people. Oh, okay. <laughs> Um, anyway, so listen, uh, you know, we're just, you, you jump in when you want, Andu. Yes, yes, sir. Um, but uh, I, I just read your book uh, in preparation. I have to say, um, I rarely prepare for these interviews. Good. Uh, Me too. <laughs> I, I rarely do. But in your case, I, I had the book anyway on my uh-huh. Kindle. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, it was languishing there along with all the other books I w- ordered with the best of intentions and... <laughs> Yeah, I think the Kindle sort of, I think that whole business model, it's like gym memberships, Mm -hmm. you know, it's so easy to order books. It's so hard to so read hard them. To yeah, do exactly. It. Yeah. Right. The satisfaction but it will be is, there for your grandchildren. Yeah, that's, <laughs> if we have machines that will still read the format, exactly. Probably we will. That's that's how we'll justify yeah. it. The satisfaction of the acquisition. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, the satisfaction of the acquisition, which reminds me of a line you quoted. Uh, from Alfred North Whitehead, the book has now undergone the formality of actually occurring. Actually occurring. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, I'll yes. have you know, to I the chagrin of some, but the delight <laughs> of others. <laughs> it underwent the formality of actually having been read too, at least by me. Maybe um, we should mention the title since we're here. That's it. The books. Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss: My Life with with Terence McKenna. Yep. Uh, it's, it's out in uh, paperback as well as uh, the Kindle version. Yes, and you can order it from Amazon.com. That's the easiest way. Or you can come to one of these venues, one of these events that we're doing. Or you can order off the website, BrotherhoodOfTheScreamingAbyss.com, which is just the same as the title without the the. And you can order it from there. I yeah, want to make a plug. Like, to get it sooner from Amazon.com, to be honest, because I fulfill the orders. The great thing about going to the website, though, is there's a lot of other great support material. There, there is a lot media, of great Your podcast uh, links to yeah. that and a lot of great stuff. A there. lot of podcasts and stuff there. Yeah. So, yeah, just get that out to the folks. And All right. Let's talk. Now, well, but first, you need to just sit back and let me gush about how good this fucking book is. All right? Because it's fresh <laughs> in my mind yeah. here. <laughs> and uh, and I rarely do this, honestly. I, I rarely do, but I found it to be... Um, <clears throat> and cards on the table, I've never been a big Terrence McKenna fan. So I'm not coming at it from the perspective of someone who idolized your brother and is just trying to get the story, you know. Um, right. And as I was reading it, I was thinking of people I'd love to recommend the book to. And there, a lot of them are people who've never heard of Terrence. And it's just such a beautifully written book on its own terms whether anyone in it is famous or not doesn't really matter thank you the the younger brother 
energy that you bring to it. I'm an older brother, and my sister's four years younger than me, which you point out is the exact worst possible worst possible age difference. Gap. Yes, <laughs> but the the energy. My best buddy is a younger brother. He's uh, three years, I think, younger than his brother, and I recognize so much of him in your voice. There's a there's a tolerance, like I get where he's coming from. It's fucked up. He's hurting people, but I can see. He, you know, and there's an admiration, and yet um, a distance and an ability to judge things that maybe the older sibling doesn't have because they're more caught up in their own ego. You know, growing up in the presence of someone older, smarter, more advanced in so many ways, right. it gives you a, a sense of decency. I think um, that I found really, really beautiful, and it it not only informed your discussions of your brother, but it it informed your discussions of relationships with women you had over the years and your parents and right uh it's right. a very insightful book and i really congratulate you for it well that's really kind thank you so much for saying yeah. that yeah. so yeah. to piggyback on that it's a herculean effort and i think your your analysis of uh, of uh, political events and cultural events through the late 50s and early 60s and into the 70s is also not only very astute but um uh, very, very compassionate and with uh, with an eye towards uh, how those events all shake out to to create a possible there, future. There you for have us. it. So from the cultural level to the personal level, you would recommend this book. And I'm, I'm yeah, other highly. than the fact that I want to sell books, which is obvious, and these comments are not going to hurt that. But I really appreciate that you that you feel that way. I I made a different I, I made an effort to be honest, to write an honest book and uh, uh, you know, I just I just wrote what came to mind. I was under a, a little pressure, you know, I mean you say an Herculean effort. I was under I did this Kickstarter campaign mm-hmm. to get both the time which is which is equivalent to money and the money to to print the book and the Kickstarter campaign was more successful than I ever anticipated mm. primarily because there's a huge Terrence McKenna fan base out there but the book is not really directed at the fan base they'll they'll get it but the book is directed toward a larger uh, hopefully a larger receptive audience and mostly people who lived in that period they were turbulent times mm. you know and they still are they've the 60s and 70s have now given us the the whatever you call these the the aughts and the teens of this century and all of those uh, you know we were convinced at that time that the revolution was just around the corner i think now we're convinced that the revolution is going to happen but it'll take a little longer <laughs> and we're not necessarily going to live to see it which is a pity we're seeing parts of it and and you know, but who knows where this is going to go in in uh, ten years? And I hope I'm around in ten years to see it. I think the phenomena with cannabis and what's going on with ayahuasca and some of this material on the drug front is all very encouraging and kind of exactly what we said would happen. You know, inevitably, in if you you don't want to get into a war on plants. You know, because the plants are going to win. You know, and they've been around a lot longer than we have, and they will be a lot lo- around a lot longer after we're gone. So, you know, and you inevitably get into these silly situations when you're trying to outlaw plants. Um, have you read Opium for the Masses? 
you know that book? No, I haven't. It's it's a book about opium and how to grow opium and uh, the poppies and make right. your own teas and all these sorts of things. Right. It's written by a guy in Seattle, I believe. Um, and and it's he makes the point that uh, if you're legally in the United States, if you're growing opium poppies because they're pretty, mm-hmm. that's legal. Mm-hmm. If you're growing them because you know that you can then make various concoctions of them, that's illegal. Wow. Right. And exactly what the hell? What an absurdity. What an absurdity is that, you know? And uh, yeah, how can you divine the intention of yeah. the little old lady who grows <laughs> poppies in her backyard? Yeah, they are pretty. And hey, maybe she takes a few stalks and boils them up and makes a tea and it helps her to uh, you know, sleep or re- reduces her aches and pains, and why shouldn't she be allowed to do that? Yeah. And this is this actually uh, this topic goes to the crux in some ways of what I'll be talking about at Herbstom today, but which I talk about all the time. This idea that we have that we own nature, mm-hmm. you know, and that we can exploit nature or, and rape nature and do anything we want to nature to to suit our economic or corporate or uh, you know political agendas but it's a complete misreading of the situation the, the notion that we should you know we should arrogate to ourselves the authority to eradicate a plant from the face of the earth like opium or cannabis or you know some of these yeah okay they're subject to abuse but who appointed this species you know <laughs> to say this you know there's not they're not the fucking smallpox virus yeah yeah <laughs> you know and and even the smallpox virus i mean okay there's something that nobody likes if if you can make a case for an organism that should be eradicated from the earth that would be the smallpox virus. But it would and be it very has. strange to criminalize it, though, wouldn't it? Be well, it would be a little <laughs> silly to criminalize it because yeah. there's no there's no criminal trade in it. But, you know, uh, I mean, the smallpox virus has largely been eradicated from the earth, except, of course, bioweapons labs of various... Uh, Various superpowers mm-hmm. have kept strains back, just in case. Yeah. Just in case of what? Yeah. <laughs> just well, in case yeah. we want to, you know, engender a worldwide plague. Unleash it on like, aspects of a superfluous be, population. These people should be, you know, they need a reality check here. So uh, this whole idea of, you know, that that we have the authority, and and even if we did to you know, uh, sort of declare a plant species anathema uh, and just say it's it's so bad that it should be eradicated from the face of the earth. This is this is just, this is hubris gone out of control. And well, that gets me back to something you said earlier where you said we feel that the revolution is around the corner. Um, but, and we, you know, people felt that in the 60s. Uh, I feel like now a lot of people aren't waiting for the revolution; they're waiting for the collapse. I don't know if it, if anyone felt that way in the '60s. You know, it seemed I was very young in the '60s, but it seemed that people felt like, you know, the whole "yes, we can" and hope and change, like we we can build a better world. You know, and now I feel like what we're waiting for is the this world to like finally run out of gas and then see what we can do with what's left right it's a much right. less uh utopian vision i think it, yeah it's much yeah it is it's, it's you touch on that in the book a, a few utopian times vision I, I think people were waiting for the revolution 
and the very word revolution connotes you know some political aspect to it right i think we're you know this generation and past experiences has led us to reject all political uh, all politics all ideological solutions you know they don't exist i yeah. mean what what we have to do as a species if we're going to get through this is is re-understand our relationship to nature mm-hmm. you know and realize that we're not we do not own it we're part of it we can't rule it you know we we it rules us or it controls us we better hope that it does because this is what's sustaining life on this planet and i think that in in terms of getting that lesson until a critical mass of people wake up to the fact that we don't own nature and that in fact we have to nurture it without owning it i don't even like the notion of being stewards of nature because that still implies control yeah you know what we have to do we have to be uh, we have to almost submit ourselves to nature in order to to save it and save ourselves it's kind of like you know um, I mean on the on a global scale what's happening is we're despoiling our habitat and uh, you know one of one of the controversies in endangered species and so on when endangered species, Legislation is they always focus on the species, save the snail darter, save the spotted owl. You can't do that without saving the habitat that these that these things exist in. We'll just extend that to the global scale. We can't save ourselves until we save our habitat, and our habitat happens to be planet Earth. And yeah. uh, we're fouling the nest as fast as we can. I have a question about that. Um, we were talking earlier about books like Ian McGilchrist, um, you know, The Master and His Emissary, The Divided Brain, The Return to the Brain of Eden. And, and in my research it, uh, in neuropsychology, they're saying that the way to accomplish this, the way to accomplish a, a species-wide return to states of empathic distress and an awareness of our essential connection to one another and to the cosmos is by triggering right hemispheric dominant states um, right. of being. And so in your research with plant hallucinogens, um, has there been much work on how they affect the hemispheres differently or how they move us into right hemisphere dominant states of well, spatial I, and pattern recognition? Yeah, there is beginning to be research on that, yeah. that kind of thing, and, and how psychedelics in combination with uh, sound, for example, mm-hmm. atonality, you can use sound to integrate hemispheric functions and that sort of thing i don't think it's so much we don't want to what we're not trying to do is 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 shift to right hemisphere dominance right hemisphere dominance may be as bad as left hemisphere dominance what we're trying to do is integrate hemispheric Mm -hmm. dominance and thereby open up this whole uh, Whole world of knowing that that Tony Wright and and Herod Buhner and others talk about the the imaginal way of knowing that's not analytical, that's not logical, it's more intuitive. And that's what psychedelics do. Um, Partly they give access to to that other way of perception that normally we're so... Western people are so entrained to look at the certain uh, look at the world to number one separate themselves from the world and two to emphasize visual uh, perception over everything else 
and and so that's a fallout of uh, you know Western culture of literacy and all that. And McLuhan, if any of you are familiar with yeah, him, sure. back in the day, and he was right on. He was right on that that you know our print preoccupation has separated visual functions uh, out of all the other ways that we might perceive. And now evolutionarily, we're returning to an era where it's a more aural based and more sensory integrated based form of perception and i think that uh i think that ultimately that's a good thing because you know uh that the the uh preoccupation with literacy and the visual function what that does is it gives you perspective it gives mm -hmm. you point of view but to have a point of view the viewer has to be outside the context so that leads to that makes it easy to separate yourself from nature, you know. And science is 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 uh, guilty of this too. It, it's part of science that you have to be objective. You have to be, you know, I am the scientist. You are the subject, you know, or you or whatever it is you happen to be looking at. And it's an illusion. We're not separate from anything, you know, and no, nothing is separate from anything. So, you know, you can try to be objective about science it's a methodological convenience but it shouldn't be confused with the way it really is you know what i'm saying it's it's something that we do for our convenience we have to do it in order to to do science but well it is it's a method it's a light i, I think of science as like a flashlight and it illuminates things but right it can never illuminate you can't search for darkness with a flashlight. And there are things that only exist in darkness. Exactly, exactly. Uh, I think Wordsworth said we murder to dissect. You know, yeah. it's like you can't dissect a living organism. It's Leonard Schlein's book. It, it, interesting that you should mention this this murdering to dissect thing. And one of my one of my dialogues, uh, I don't know when it came up exactly, but but someone said something very astute, which was that science had to declare nature dead mm. in order so that the autopsy could begin. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? And nature is, is not dead. And, uh, you know, uh, you yeah. Were, so. When you were talking about separation uh, and, and uh, requiring ourselves to see ourselves as separate in order to study something, I was reminded of a story, I think it's uh, Carl Jung recounted in Memories, Dreams, and Reflections, um, that he was in... He took a trip to Africa. I think he was late in his career. He was in his 50s mm -hmm. with another Swiss uh, medical doctor. And they had porters and the whole thing, trunks and, you know, that whole kind of <laughs> Europeans <laughs> go to Africa yeah, yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> but they went pretty far back. I think they were in the Congo. The Kipling kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Kind of, yeah, like real colonial kind of. Mm -hmm. But they were pretty far back and they were in some village. And the two of them, you know, had their notebooks, and they, you know, they're they were taking notes of the, the you know the exotic natives, and they were um, there was a fire, and they were dancing and playing drums, and the native people were dancing around the fire, and the two Swiss scientists were sitting over there taking notes, <laughs> and as the night wore on, I don't know if there are any uh, substances involved, but as the night wore on, the people got kind of wilder and wilder, and the dance 
sort of move from the fire to around these two scientists. Yeah, with their notebooks. <laughs> with their notebooks. And they're like, you know, gesturing at them with their spears and stuff. And the, the other scientist said to Jung, like, I think they're going to kill us. You know, this is not going well. Are they getting a cooking pot prepared yeah, somewhere? Exactly. <laughs> so, so Jung... Yeah. Uh, from the story I remember, it's like the plot to Godzilla or something. Jung puts down his notebook, takes off his, you know, those little glasses he had, and gets up and starts dancing with yeah. the natives. And everyone cracked up, and that was it, and it was fine. This is what I understand. Join, the join the party, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. This is where the going native phrase began. No, no, no. Uh, oh, yeah, no. there you yeah, go, there you I'm go, there right, you go. Yeah, you just you had it so close to your your mouth earlier, yeah, and your yeah. voice is so um, manly. That you were blasting the listeners. I get the mic in my hand and I just have all these uh, repressed homosexual fantasies. Is that what it is? I I thought you were like doing an Elvis thing there. (laughs) You were getting all lippy with the mic. You know, I like getting (laughs) Just find the the middle path. That's my hip hop beat. There you go. But, yeah, this uh, Peter Gabriel wrote a great song about that very thing. Oh, my buddy, buddy, Peter Gabriel, yeah. Peter Gabriel called The Rhythm of the Heat, and he talks about this very thing. It's uh, it's a big deal in anthropology, and it's a challenge that's gone out to scientists, Mm. which is that there are certain things that, this is Castaneda's thing, that there are certain things that cannot be understood through separate separate observation, but can need to be experienced directly. In order right, right. It can only be experienced. The anthropologist through. sitting outside of the Navajo tribe saying, "Send us your shaman right. to tell mm-hmm. us your ways," mm-hmm. and then writing them down on this. And notebook. then the problem with that is, if it can only be understood through experience, then it can never be explained, right? Which is the ultimate frustration for scientists. Yeah, there's a great. There's what better explanation of the ayahuasca experience? Well, it's so many experiences. Love, yeah, love, you know, yeah. whatever. I mean, there's so many experiences. That, well, well, this, this is uh, <laughs> this is yeah. exactly this is one of the the thing one of the dilemmas that psychedelics bring to mm-hmm. science because yeah. now science is taking a second look at it. And say, well, yes, there is really something here, but uh, you know, we can talk about receptors and pharmacology, and we can do neuroimaging studies. We can give people psilocybin and shove them in fMRI machines, and we can say, well, you know, this part of the brain is lighting up, and that one is suppressed, and we can get this beautiful neuroimaging maps. What does it actually mean? You can say, well, okay, this part of the uh, brain is activated at a high state of, you know, at the peak experience of a psilocybin or something else. But beyond that, you can't, you know, so far no scientific paradigm that I'm aware of will explain what it's like to be on the inside Mm -hmm. of that experience. It just, it's close to it. And it doesn't have to be psychedelics. No, No theory of neuroscience will explain what it's like to be on the inside of your head and my head and just sitting around, you know, yeah. everything. It's like trying to explain color to a blind person. Everything that we're experiencing is a brain state of some kind, and we can take all the external measures that we want, but it will never be equivalent to the experience we have of being, just being. Speaking of color, you're, you just triggered something. Uh, and, and and it's related to what both of you just said. I have a buddy who's colorblind, hmm. like severely colorblind. So colorblind that he came home one day. Like he with, dates black chicks or what? <laughs> yeah. He's, uh, he came home one day uh, with this uh, ski outfit that he bought. It was on sale. 
And he was so happy. And it was like camouflage, yeah. you know? And he didn't realize it was pink and purple. Whoa. <laughs> he walked he the girl He's one. like, look what I got. <laughs> Dude, it's like he's Jay Z. Anyway, so uh, he's severely colorblind. He had never uh, tried psychedelics at all. Oh, yeah, we okay. laughed our asses off. Um, but uh, one time uh, he and I uh, took some mushrooms together. It was the only time he had ever done it. And he was standing there staring. And I said, what, what's going on, man? He said, I see color. Wow. For the for only time in his life, I hmm. see colors. Interesting. And I was you know, searching about for a PhD thesis at the time. And so I started reading a lot about colorblindness to try to figure out, and, and vision in general, because... You know, we think vision's about the eyes. Vision's all created in our brains. Oh, totally. You know, well, not totally. Not totally, Obviously, but... It has the input from the eyes. Right, but, but the yeah. input is nothing like... Well, it's something like, but it's... What, what we see is not what our eyes are seeing, exactly. right? We're picking exactly. up these two different things upside down and you know, merged and the blind spots removed and all the really interesting stuff. So I, I did some preliminary research mm-hmm. in this to see, because, you know, about 10% of white men are colorblind. So well, imagine if we could use psychedelics to treat that. Like by color mind, do you mean they'd see in black and white? Pretty much. Mean I mean, there are different one types. Color is a different color. No, there are different types of color blindness. I There's see. like the blue green and the red. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't remember the the exact ones, but basically, instead of what we recognize as color, assuming none of us are color blind, um, they see as shades of gray. So my friend, for example, when he wasn't tripping, he could vaguely distinguish a yellow. Yeah. Everything else were just shades of gray, red, green, whatever. Interesting. And but he was like looking at a like a line of books or or something, and he was just seeing all this input that he had never seen before. And it's fascinating. There's been some research I'm sure you know of that talks about how psilocybin has uh, absolutely does this and increases auditory and visual and visual. Yeah, 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 yeah. definitely. Well, so there's an example, you know, of. Uh, an application for something like psilocybin or psychedelics that's really kind of outside the realm of what we usually think of. We think of yeah. spiritual experience and, you know, exploring all that and and exploring altered states of different kind. But But that suggests that this could be actually a tool for neurologists to find out what is going on with this color perception in right. inside the brain. And, and that would hardly be unprecedented, right? I mean, is it true? This is an opportunity for me to confirm whether or not I'm full of shit on, on several things. <laughs> well, I can already confirm that you're full of shit. Yeah. But not all the time. <laughs> but about specific things. You don't need things. to say <laughs> <laughs> no, Just kidding. <laughs> no, you're right. There are some things that I, I spout, and I read them so long ago that I'm not even sure I read them. So one of them is that a lot of what we understand about neurotransmitters uh, is the result of scientists trying to figure out how the hell a, such a tiny dose of LSD could have these amazing effects on the brain. Research done in the late 50s, early 60s. Is that true? Or am I full of shit? Yeah, no, it is true. <laughs> it, it's true. It's well, both ends, man. <laughs> Not either Welcome one. to his Chris full of <laughs> shit. shit yeah. For two hundred dollars. <laughs> Not quite. Uh, not quite. The, the LSD was. Uh, it, it's partly true because LSD 
came along, it was available to clinicians and, and neuroscientists such as they were in those days in the in the 50s and 60s, about uh, in the really in the 40s and 50s, about the time that well, we didn't even know they didn't even know what it worked on, and about the same time that LSD was being distributed to these labs for for clinical experiments, people were discovering serotonin, and serotonin came along, and it looked like LSD, you know, structurally speaking, mm. and what do you know? LSD affected serotonin, so that was the marriage of the two things that that was thinking that uh, LSD could be a molecular probe to figure out what the hell serotonin was and what did it do. And you have to remember this was a time when the concept of what even a neurotransmitter was was uh, you know kind of not that developed, not that uh-huh. sophisticated. So in that sense, to try to puzzle out how something like LSD could have this effect at such an incredibly low dose, that was part of it, but there was more to it than that. It was all about how can this molecule LSD, which receptors does it interact with, and how can it elicit you know, the phenomenon which we call the psychedelic experience, all of these things. How does that fit together? Right. What was true then is still true now, and we still don't have a really solid explanation for why, out of all the psychedelics, uh, LSD is so anomalously active, you know, at orders of magnitude less than anything else we know. So in neuroscience, the thinking is that, you know, uh, hallucinogens, psychedelics interact with the one particular subclass of serotonin receptors called the 5-HT2A receptors, and it, they do primarily, but that's not the whole story because they all do, but LSD has another activation pathway that we haven't really figured out. And, uh, you know, so. <laughs> so I, so, I'm, so I'm partly now, full of shit. What's is the like research opening on that again? I mean, do you think that with uh, with our nation's change in perception on the drug laws and cannabis that, that we're going to maybe remove this notion of prohibition on LSD research again in the laboratory, and second part is that different in Canada than it is here. Well, it's it's uh, it's a little easier to get this work done in Canada, and research is now opening up, you know. But the emphasis is not. I mean, the emphasis in in the clinical work, like the work Hefter is doing and and helping sponsor, we've kind of staked out psilocybin mm-hmm. as our drug of choice, if you will, in the same way that MAPS has staked out MDMA, and we have similar, you know, sort of agendas. But the focus is really on the clinical applications and not as much on the basic neuroscience, mm-hmm. although that is going on, but, you know, and and if you can legitimize the clinical applications, which is what's happening through these different FDA-approved protocols, we think, well... There's, there need to be more, but there are quite a few. If if you can show it has definite clinical applications, then there'll be a lot more resources put into figuring out how does it work. You know, uh, yeah. I mean, for the pharmaceutical industry, the holy grail is a compound that, you know, does the desired things but lacks psychoactivity, and so it's like. Yeah. 
they're unclear on the concept, right? The psychoactive part, the psychedelic part, is intrinsic to the psychoactivity. Mm -hmm. I mean, it always, it, to the therapeutic effects. It always amuses me how they're trying to find a compound. That, well, it's not really psychoactive, but it does all these good things. No, it's the psychedelic experience that does it's it. actually the, the healing. The yeah. drugs just trigger that. It's funny how we yes. do that. I remember a while back there was uh, they were trying to they found the medicinal value of garlic. I mean we've known this since I mean forever, but they, they were trying to make these garlic tablets that people could take that didn't have the smell, mm -hmm. but still gave yeah. you. But they found out that the smelly stuff is actually the most exactly. medicinal. Yeah, yeah and that's yeah. it's a very apt analogy. Yeah. That's exactly they're trying to engineer the psychedelic experience, you know, out of. The molecule, or yeah. you know, its properties out of the molecule. I always think of the French paradox in in these sorts of conversations. You know, the the French paradox is that French people eat a lot more fat than Americans, mm -hmm. and yet have uh, much lower body fat and uh, much heart lower rates of heart disease. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so they're always trying to figure out what's the secret. Is it the the red right. wine contains this molecule, yeah, yeah, yeah. or is it the this chocolate. or that? <laughs> no, you know what it is. It's that they eat like French people. <laughs> they sit around a table, they enjoy lunch, they take right. two hours, they're sitting in the sun with their friends, they right. laugh. <laughs> That's what the fuck it is. There's no magic chemical in there. It's that mm. they're French people. They also walk more. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they walk more, they fuck more, you know. Like. All those things. L lower yeah. stress levels, yep. lower rates of heart disease, exactly. and all these things. Yeah, That's exactly right. All right, and another bit of my bullshit I wanted to, to check in on you with, check in with you on, is um, I've been saying uh, I've been saying that it is infinitesimal, infinitesimally unlikely that people in the Amazon would have ever figured out how to mix the two plants. Mm -hmm. together one to block the uh mao and the other with the psychoactive right um and that there's really no mathematical or scientific way to understand how they came to this conclusion because there are i don't know hundreds of thousands millions yeah. of species of plants well about eighty thousand species yeah. in the amazon in the and amazon. Then a combination of any and two that is combination in, yeah. right well, do yeah. they grow together? Uh, so how do they do this? This is a conundrum. Right. This is a kind of an ethnobotanical mystery in some ways. I'm not sure. Well, if you talk to the shamans, they'll say, "Well, the plants told us, mm -hmm. right? You know how to do that." And you say, "Well, that's bullshit. Plants don't talk to you." But in fact, plants do talk to you. Yeah. And you know, they send. Also, if you're an indigenous person, you're. You know, you're uh, sensitive to, uh, because you don't have this background foreground thing happening, this visual separation, you're aware of things in the background, in the, in the environment that we would not be because we're, we're, you know, culturally, um, we're culturally programmed to suppress that, you know, that's one thing psychedelics do is they... I think I really think when they look into it, they'll see that they partly, sh you know, they put the foreground in the background and they bring the background forward. So mm. you notice things that you normally wouldn't. And an indigenous person who's totally integrated into their environment and trained to notice things, if you go out with someone like that, they will see a lot of things that you're missing. And I think that somehow this comes. 
this discovery comes out of that acute observation ability, I, I, you know, ability to be aware of, uh, you know, plants on many levels, the tastes, for example, the smells, also watching what other animals interact with the plants. Uh, you know, I mean, this, this is not a scientific explanation, but this is an intuition of how they do it. Uh, I can give you an example. Uh, when, I was, uh, when I was doing my, my field work uh, in the Amazon in, in 1981 as a graduate student, I was investigating uh, the, this, this drug called ukuhe, which is not related to ayahuasca. It's chemically related to ayahuasca. It's got tryptamines in it, but it's a completely other botanical thing. And uh, we were at a place. We, uh, we wanted to collect as many samples of varola, which is the tree it's derived from, as we could. They're called generically. They're called kumalas is the common name. And in, uh, in the Amazon... They're known as kumalas, and there are many species, and some contain high levels of alkaloids, and some contain low, and some contain no alkaloids at all, right? And so the shamans had to have to be able to select the proper species to prepare this stuff, and this was, this was disappearing knowledge, right, among the group we were working with. They were culturally impacted. They're forgetting how to do it. Their grandfathers knew how to do it, but mm -hmm. they, the, these guys are forgetting. But some of the older ones still kind of remember. And and we went out with this one old shaman one one day to collect many varieties of kumala, of which were quite abundant in this area, different kinds. And he looked at them each one as we collected and he said this is good this one is fuerte, fuerte you yeah, can make yeah. good stuff with this this one you know no vale it doesn't have not very strong so we collected all of these different ones and the notes that we made about what he had said about each one so when i got it, these samples back to the lab and had gas chromatography and all that to actually look at the alkaloids he was a hundred percent correct you know the ones that he said had alkaloids, and to you they all looked the same. High levels, they looked all pretty much the same. Yeah. And the ones he said didn't have were not fuerte. They didn't have any alkaloids. Yeah. So what was he queuing in on? Yeah. I mean, I think probably well, taste and smell, and he could just look at it. You know, he'd look at the bark. He'd look at the quality of the resin because that was that was what it came from. And he just look at it and say, "This is fuerte." It's so funny how what was it he picked up on? Yeah, it was not obvious to me. And you know? you know, it's funny how, from a scientific perspective, that sort of story is sort of uh, hard to believe, or you know, uh, right? And yet, it happens. It, it's everywhere around us, right? If you're right. an art uh, curator, you look at a painting and you say, "Oh, well, that's a 13th century," you know, from. You know, mm -hmm. northern Belgium. I look at it and say, I don't know. I have no idea. You know? Ferdy, but you <laughs> right. don't know. Yeah. Well, that and that just goes to show there are ways of knowing that we're that are completely outside the ken of science. You know, and we neglect them. I mean, the world is much richer if we try to integrate those things. So, but specifically, I mean, nobody really knows how they stumbled on this. But what we do know is that. Um, in the, you know, around 
say uh, say zero AD, maybe a thousand BC or something. There were indigenous there were indigenous tribes. We know that these snuffs that contain uh, the Anadenanthrus snuffs, we know those are very ancient. They go back at least to 5,000 BC. How do we know that? Peru. Well, they've been discovered. They've been discovered in <coughs> archaeological digs. Really? Snuff trays and tubes ah. and seeds. So we know that, that was, that's a very old knowledge. Right. Now, the question of <coughs> how these people figured out and this this in itself is a mystery. How do they figure out this? These seeds contain DMT, mm-hmm. which are not orally active. How do they figure out that you have to make a snuff out of this to yeah. get anywhere? And someone else blows it up your nose. And someone right? else blows it up your nose, yeah. or they have individual. But the thing is, they had to figure out that there's something in there they didn't know from MAO inhibitors, but they right. intuited it or something. But they thought. Hey, well, maybe if we make a snuff and put it up our nose, it'll be active. Well, what do you know? So that's a pretty <laughs> sophisticated intuition. Yeah. But then you've got these groups that uh, are using snuff. And they also, in some groups, were known to chew banisteriopsis stems uh, and as a kind of uh, I don't know why they chewed it but this 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 is pretty well documented they didn't make a brew out of it but they would chew the stems well you can see where if you know a person is chewing the banisteriopsis and mm. happens to be taking the snuffs you know it's going to put it together and they'll get a much better much stronger effect uh, and probably this accidental discovery of the interaction, and then right. somebody has the idea: why don't we just boil all this together and see what happens? So that could have been an intermediate step there. Get a lot of time on your step. hands. Yeah. I saw a piece recently with an anthropologist who was in South America, and he was uh, studying a tribe that um, had reported to the people who were able to. Uh, with their bare hands hold uh, electric eels, eels that if you or I picked up, it would stop our heart. And this guy went to see if that was true and figure out how they could do it. Yeah. And it turns out it was true. And uh, for some reason, the, the, it wasn't just anybody in the tribe. It was certain people. And the night before, they would go and they would actually eat these things because they could just grab them out of the water. They'd kind of direct them in a way and then they'd just go pick into shallow water and they'd just go pick them up. Yeah. Um, and the, even, the night before this happened, they would do a ritual... Um, with the shaman, and they would take, uh, they would make little cuts on their forehead in different areas, and then they took uh, a little bit of the poison from a particular poisonous frog, and actually spit it into these open cuts on these uh, on these men, and they would get sick and vomit a little bit, and then the next day they were able to hold these electric eels without being shot. It makes absolutely no sense, but I mean, I watched footage of it and read yeah. the piece. Yeah, and, and again, the guy They're was not baffled. That, and the frogs and the, the well, the frog is is the the sapo medicine. Uh-huh. You know that they use. They put a, they make a uh, like a poke themselves with a lit cigarette and okay. make a lesion, and then they can rub this exactly this frog venom into it, and they get this very strong uh, reaction. It's not the psychedelic. It's a more like a stimulant. Yeah. Uh, it's mm. like, you know, it's a very strong cholinergic uh, reaction. It's, and it's, but why that would give them the... I, I hadn't heard the electric eel part of it. Yeah, I'll trace why, the article down. Why that would give them the ability to handle an electric eel. It was bizarre. I'm not quite sure. Utterly bizarre. But. That is very strange. 
Um, what do you think of Narby's explanation of that? I mean, he basically, in so many words, says what you just said, that, that even as a scientist, I mean, the best explanation we have is that the plants told them how to do it. I mean, we can argue about what that means exactly. How did the plants tell them? But that yeah. is actually the best going explanation. I think it is the best going explanation. But mm-hmm. yeah, as you say, we can argue as to how this happened. But we know that plants, you know, plants communicate on many levels and one of their one of their big ways to do it uh, is through chemistry mm-hmm. that's one of the big ways and and Buhner's right chemistry is the lost language of plants i mean it's not lost lost that's to us whole, <laughs> you know that's how they do it as well as other behavioral strategies that they have that are uh, you know that are not as well studied but i mean i was fond of saying and i've said many times plants substitute biosynthesis for behavior but i can't really say that anymore because yeah they do they substitute biosynthesis for a lot of behavior but they have behaviors they mm. have you know long term planning and altruism and strategies they negotiate relationships with other Organisms, other plants yeah. in their environment, to animals that want to feed on them, insects, obviously. These are all chemically mediated um, dialogues, if you will. They're, you know, they establish and, relationships with mycelium networks. Yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. with primates, too, because yeah. we're just another primate that, for some reason or another, you know, wants to uh, nibble on these things. And, <laughs> uh, you know, and in our case, maybe even for other. Um, other organisms as well, but a lot of these alkaloids are elaborated as repellents for many com- many organisms. It's a signal: right. stay away, do not consume me. But we come along, you know, with our curious brain and our over hypertrophy cortices and all these receptors that are screaming out for stimulation, and we nibble on a leaf that's bitter, and we say, "Oh, bitter." Maybe there's something good here, you know, because most alkaloids are yeah. bitter. So that's a form of symbiosis, too. The plant, we pick up the chemical signal, we interpret it as something that might have a desirable effect on our, you know, Which is so sensorium. strange. Another animal might interpret the same signal as, a, you know, the same chemical as a signal to stay away, to not consume the Well, plant. isn't that essentially what those chemical, they're defense mechanisms for the plants generally, right? They're for toxins. Some, well, no, you can't, it depends on who it's directed toward. Right, like like the like in Iboga, it's in the root, so it makes no sense for it to be a defense mechanism. Oh. You have to well, dig no, the plant up things, and kill it. It, yeah. it is. Yeah. It, it does. There are things in, oh, in the yeah. soil oh, that well, yeah, attack yeah. it. You know, but for example, the beta carbolates, you know, yeah. which like harmine and harmaline and tetrahydrohormine, the three main alkaloids of uh, of Banisteriopsis, mm-hmm. they're monoamine oxidase inhibitors, uh, and for that reason, they're the valuable uh, component of ayahuasca that makes it orally active. But they also are pretty good antibiotics and antifungals, and especially in the presence uh, of light. They're okay. light-activated. So the, the Banisteriopsis vine probably evolved these things as a protectant against pathogens, bacterial invaders and fungal evaders and that kind of thing. And then the same compound, you know, fits another purpose. So it's repurposed to a different application. 
message it sends to a bacterium is you're dead, the message it sends to us is add to the Banisteriopsis and activate the hallucinogen. Right. So, because <laughs> yeah. earlier you were, when we were talking about how people may have come to these various concoctions, you mentioned taste. And I thought, holy shit, man, I have never tasted anything as bad as peyote and, well, ayahuasca to a lesser extent. But whoever first said, I'm going to eat 20 peyote buttons (laughs) was a badass (laughs) motherfucker. I mean, holy shit. It can be pretty gnarly. (laughs) My people came up with circumcision, so (laughs) come on. (laughs) Talk about about the first guy to do something. Remember, you're doing that to someone else. It's not like we don't like pain, right? (laughs) But yeah. yeah, it's 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 uh, it's absolutely true. You know that there are herbal medicines are known, and this is one of my biases about ayahuasca. I you know herbal medicines are known. The class of herbal medicines known as bitters, which are some things you act, add to your like vodka gimlet and this kind of stuff. <laughs> Those are medicinal tonics that contain very very bitter plants, and they're used mm. to stimulate the appetite and settle the stomach and get your saliva going and all that. They do not work unless you take unless you taste them. If you put the constituents in a capsule and swallow it, it won't have the effect. Oh, that's fascinating. Right? So that's fa- so it's, so mi- it's mitigated with, by the conscious mind. Yeah, you must perceive it in order for it to activate all these enzymatic processes which start in the mouth and just go through the digestive system so i make this argument for ayahuasca and although i do admire uh a lot of the work that like jordy reba's done with ayahuasca for example um it's all based on freeze-dried ayahuasca which you take in a capsule i say you have to drink it taste the brew you have to drink it to get the full effect and ideally you have to purge People don't purge in when they use this free-dried preparation. But do you think it's so also necessary? They have necessary. a psychedelic experience, but they don't have the purgative effect. Is it also along the same line? Is it also necessary to be in Peru or Brazil? No, 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 no. I don't think so. I don't think it's necessary to do any of that. Right. It reminds me of something a little bit, although slightly off-topic. You said in the book about the first time you used cannabis. Uh, you uh, said you had to learn how to be high, and you, and you yeah. do believe it's something that you kind of have to learn to do. And yeah. Mez Mesro in his book, uh, Re- uh, Reality or Really the Blues, Mez was that trumpet player from Harlem that uh-huh. basically single-handedly brought cannabis to the rest of the country. It's a great book. Huh. Um, he talked about that, too, that like when used in like black culture in jazz joints, like you learned how to be high by the presence of the people you're with. Yeah, White kids started smoking in their uncommon. bedrooms. I mean these these are learned these are learned cues. Mm. And in some ways yeah, I think I think all psychedelics or uh, to a certain extent, they're active placebos. You know, Andy Wilde talks about sure, this, how it puts you minds. into a particular place. And if you're prepared you know, if you're kind of set up for it the effect is going to be different than if you're not i mean there there are interesting reports you know psilocybin mushrooms were around you know have been around forever and there are interesting reports some of the uh reports that uh what what's the guy's name who wrote shroom you know that book Mm -hmm. shroom andy andrew somebody um 
anyway, a very interesting book, but he talks about documented cases of uh, uh, accidental psilocybin mushroom poisoning that happened, poisoning that happened in the 19th century, early 20th century, these accounts where people took these things wasn't enjoyable for them. They thought they were losing their minds, mm, you yeah. know. They and definitely perceived it as, you know, I ate a bad mushroom and now I'm fucked up, you know. Uh, so they have to learn to interpret that state a different way. And now we have, and now we eat mushrooms, and we don't feel like we're poison. Most people, some people might. Um, so it's a matter of how you train yourself up, and I think I think the same is true of ayahuasca. A lot of people have to take it a number of times before they get it. Mm. Uh, that was my own experience. Yeah. You know, when I was traveling in Peru, I was it was obviously me. I mean, the ayahuasca had to be okay because other people in, in the group were having visions, and, and I was sort of it's not doing this for me, and yeah. I feel like I was. In a way, I was not letting it happen. I was in a situation where I was so, uh, you know, just so uptight in a certain way, stranger in a strange land and all that. I didn't let myself get into it, and so I didn't get it's it. It's amazing to me how culture and experience then become a kind of interface for our ability to interact with these plants. And yeah. I mean, now I guess we would call this epigenetics. It's a whole new field. But you, another thing you said in the book was about the time you and Terrence smoked hashish uh, with your mother and how this same thing, that her her experience and her cultural uh, encoding just did not allow her. Just didn't, simply didn't exactly allow. did not allow her to to see that, to have that. I mean, to, so much guilt and so much just resistance to it, yeah. So it's, it's learned. Like anything else, it's learned. I mean... I, I took uh, ayahuasca the first time with Stanley Krippner in um, in Brazil at a UDV church, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, my, when I read your your account, it was similar to to my own experience. Uh, I felt like, uh, well, I, I also think there was a problem because they forgot to stir the batch before everyone took their drink, so the top of it was very weak. Uh-huh. And then and I like, yeah. and I, well, no, I was you know at the beginning because oh, okay. I was a like a uh, an honored guest, right? Okay. So I was at the beginning of the first round, and then they asked if anyone wanted a second round. So I went up, and now it's like from oh, the bottom. Yeah. Um, so I did finally I get, I did finally puke and everything. Although I never really felt like I felt like I was it was like an airplane that never quite took off. You know, it was just mm-hmm. running down the runway fast and never. <laughs> And I thought, well, it's all that acid I took, and you know, I'm like, you know, uh, you know, right. whatever, burned out, or. Um, but now here's the thing, and, and but you, you took a booster, and you. I did, took a booster, and right, I still didn't. Still didn't. No, no. Um, but here's the thing, and I, I won't tell the whole story because it's a long story. But something happened on the way to that church that um, you rem- you said something, I, I highlighted it in your book, but you said something like, I don't remember what you were referring to, but it was you said, how can something already have happened if it's in the future? Yeah. And that's what happened to me. I had, I've had two experiences, one with ayahuasca and one with peyote, where something absolutely otherworldly happened before... The drug experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's as if 
and, and in the case of Pioti, I didn't even know there was going to be a drug experience. I ran into someone in the street who I'd known seven years earlier in a completely different part of Mexico, and he and his buddy had just come down from the mountains. This was in Zacatecas. Had just come down from the, the desert gathering peyote. They had the peyote in bags with them when I ran into them in the street. Uh-huh. I had known them in, in San Cristobal de las Casas seven years earlier. And they were just like, dude, what? And they called me the CIA agent. That was their, <laughs> that their nickname. That follows Yeah. yeah hey, wait till Yana releases this broadcast. <laughs> yeah, there he is. <laughs> Holy shit. This for seven years. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that, that's a long story I'll tell elsewhere. But uh, I've got another podcast called Talking Out My Ass, and that's where I tell <laughs> these stories. But... Um, but then they were like, where are you going? Oh, I'm going to Guadalajara. No, no, come with us, come with us. I went back to the pension, and they said, look, we got all this peyote. El maestro, the teacher, wants you to be with us tonight, right? So it's like I have this crazy experience before the drug experience, and the same thing happened with ayahuasca, which made me feel like there's this sort of, is penumbra the right word? There's like a, a field, Around the experience, Sheldrake's idea. Well, yeah, kind of. You know where it, where reality is changed. You know, maybe you know, twelve hours out before the experience actually even happens. Mm-hmm. You know, did you know what I'm talking about? Is well, there- yeah. I mean, I, I I know. I think I think we've we've all had this experience. I think that what it what it partly has to do with is. This notion that uh, you know our, our day-to-day experience of the reality of time is that it's linear and there's a causal sequence and all that. The physicists will tell us that that's an illusion, you mm-hmm. know, and time isn't really linearly arranged that way. But it's something our brain does in order to make sense of the world in a certain way. Otherwise, it'd be very confusing if we had, you know. But occasionally, that's disrupted and actually. You know, you have things that happen that we think of as in the future, but they, you know, they would be in the future by logical reckoning, but they happen before their cause happens. Right. Physics is completely comfortable with this, but we aren't. Yeah. You know, they're they're comfortable with it in the sense that when you're talking about the strange things that happen, you know, yeah. yeah, this was one of your velocities and all that stuff. One of your brother's interesting ideas to me was this idea of the, the, the great attractor. And, and that was something that's kind of sat out there for a while, but we were talking about this mm-hmm. last night briefly, this idea um, in physics, you know, now they talk about downward causation and non-locality. And it seems like, as you say, the, the modern physics is approaching these ideas. And if they're not saying something exactly like your brother was saying, they're saying something very close. Very similar, yeah. Is there, are you aware of, of um, cutting-edge physicists who are using psychedelics in a research capacity? Not that you would name names, of course, but no. I mean, um, Francis Crick talked about his use of psychedelics, right, didn't he? Right. And the, oh, what I've, a great idea! Yeah, though. I mean, I would be, I would be surprised if there weren't. Um, well, you know, um, didn't Feynman? Yeah. Did Feynman smoke Feynman weed, probably, or what was he into? He probably did. I'd be surprised if he didn't. Yeah, it's I know hard a couple of should. I mean, Crick those. and Mullis and yeah, Kerry uh, Mullis. Those yeah. people, but those people were using them to give insights into molecular biology. Right. And yes, it does 
often let you, as as in Mullis's phrase, get down with the molecules. And he, <laughs> he even said in his in his Nobel Prize acceptance speech, you know, if it weren't for LSD, I wouldn't have been able to get down with the molecules and figure this out, which of course scandalized everybody. But I I think that's honest. Yeah, there, there's true. a sense in which. It, you know, cutting edge thinking is cutting edge thinking, and it doesn't yeah. really matter what the field is. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're accustomed to thinking of musicians. I mean, look at the, the you know, early Beatles versus late Beatles. Mm-hmm. I mean, shh, come on, I want to hold your hand yeah. to I am the walrus. Yeah. I mean, thank God they <laughs> took drugs, you know. By the, by the way, do you guys buy this bullshit that LSD, uh, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds had nothing to do with LSD? No. I don't and also, either. Uh, why, you know, and why Peter did he Paul come up with that swear bullshit? That, uh, Puff the Magic Dragon has nothing to do with weed. Too. Why? why are they just why? I mean, John Lennon. Why would John Lennon lie about that? He, he there's this whole concocted story about his daughter's friend, and she did this, you know, painting at school. Or no, his son's friend. Deny, he, deny, deny. But why? Other, yeah. I mean, he didn't deny other shit. He's naked in bed with Yoko. <laughs> I mean, he was obviously not afraid of controversy. Why would he lie about that? People were going to jail for their association with well, LSD. Maybe he's that. not lying. Yeah, yeah. maybe he other wasn't. people are putting that onto him, and maybe at the time he wasn't even thinking about that. You know, the, the LSD. That you know, I mean, I don't know. I I can't say that he was lying. It'd be hard to miss it. You know, because there's well, <laughs> it depends on how you see it. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. I mean, another phenomenon related to that is. Like you know uh, the mushroom icon, people mm-hmm. there. Are certain people see mushrooms everywhere. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, yeah. you look at paintings and so on. And, oh, there's a mushroom. That means right. you know, there must have been a psychedelic mushroom cult. Well, not necessarily. It's always Amanita. You know, this yeah. is an interpretation. You know, Mario so, Brothers. Yeah. yeah. So I'm sure there was, but uh, you know, a single. Depiction of a mushroom, you know, in in a bar relief or in a painting or something, you know, does not establish in itself that, uh, you know, there was a mushroom cult involved. I mean, right. there's lots of mushroom iconography shows up in Christian related art. I mean, there are, you know, pictures of of Christ uh, on the cross with clusters of mushrooms at the base of the cross that appear to be taxonomically accurate depictions of psilocybe species. There are Christian Does that mean sects. It was based on a mushroom cult. Well, maybe, but it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know. There so. are Christian religious sects that believe that his blood that was pier- like the, you know the piercing of his side that pours that blood and water onto the ground um, is the, the very food of these mushrooms and so they're a kind of sacred they, they take them in sacred ceremony as a kind of communion. Mm. From these very portraits, yeah, yeah, yeah. The same sort of contentious arguments are made about um, uh, Antonio Gaudi, the Catalan architect, because so many there's so many organic shapes in his architecture. Everybody says that guy had to be tripping to come up with this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no evidence for that. Aside, the, the, the circumstantial evidence is that Catalans eat more types of mushrooms than any other people in the world. Right. So they're very mushroom conscious. Well, what I liked actually, when you know, another one is Salvador Dali, and I liked sure. when Salvador Dali was asked about his surrealism and Are you on drugs? Do you take drugs? 
He said, no, I am drugs. <laughs> now, see, I always attribute that to you. It's a profound answer, but no, I'm <laughs> quoting Salvador Dali. But it's such, I mean, it's such a profound answer yeah. if you think about it, because we are drugs. Yeah. Now I say it. But I've ripped it off from That's him. That's funny. I've been I quoting say you saying that. <laughs> well, I do say it, so it's okay. Well, another way you're full of shit. He, well, full or of he's full of shit. Yeah, yeah. I'm full of his shit, which is even Ritually. worse. There's been a fecal uh, transplant. And it's so true if you think about it. And, and I... Yeah. You know, that's why drugs work, because we are made of drugs. And it's a reminder that, in a sense, we're always on drugs, because we're we're biochemical engines that run on neurotransmitters and hormones and, and all that. We're sitting here in normal state of mind, except Andrew. Speak for yourself. You know, baked. But <laughs> How is he going to single me out? What, what did I call we're, you? We're, on we're, we're on in a neurochemical brain state that's called the ordinary consciousness. Yeah. You it's know. Tony to you, by the way. <laughs> you know, to on to again, like, our guest is going to hit the bathroom right. <laughs> after calling me baked. So we, we could just talk about him in his yeah. um, I just wanted to read uh, just a, a, a short thing here. For years, I've this is from your book. Uh, let's the Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. You can get it on Amazon or at brotherhoodofthescreamingabyss.com. Uh, here's here's a, a little passage. For years, I've argued in lectures and writings that psychedelics probably mushrooms, accidentally or deliberately ingested by early primates, triggered synesthetic experiences that formed the critical foundations of human language and cognition, the association of inherently meaningless sounds or images with inherently meaningful symbols and ideas. Early on in the evolution of the human neural apparatus, the ingestion of psychedelics may have triggered the invention of language. That is such a profound statement. Compelling idea. Yeah, it's extremely compelling. Right. Now, we know that there are some of the building blocks of language in chimpanzees and bonobos. Right. Uh, Presumably, they're not eating mushrooms. I I don't know if, if there are hallucinogenic mushrooms growing in the Congo. Are you aware of... Undoubtedly, there are, but presumably they're not eating them, right? Isn't Africa pretty um, poor in terms of um, hallucinogens, availability uh, of hallucinogens? Nobody really knows. It's it's probably as abundant as anywhere else in terms of hallucinogens, but the oh, reason really? the new world is so rich is that there are traditions around these, and so in the new world, that brings it to people's attention. I think there's just as many hallucinogens in the old world or in Southeast Asia or any area of high biodiversity. But uh, if if cultures haven't discovered them and utilized them, you won't find them. I mean, But why know, would they like, not have discovered them? It, you know, the Africans have been just, there longer than anyone's been anywhere. But maybe their shamanism and their spiritual practice just doesn't just doesn't involve ingesting plants. Or, you I, know, it's it's not based on that. Yeah. I don't know. I if mean, you play, it's like places like Gabon, and a few spots that seem yeah, to be woven Yeah, you've got the, your ibogas, yeah. and you've yeah. got certainly in South Africa there are a number of things that mm-hmm. are used, and so uh, it may also be that you know these these traditions in the New World have just these have not totally disappeared. You know, I mean, Africa yeah. has been impacted by colonialists a lot longer than than South America in some ways. So maybe this, these things have been 
suppressed. So we're discovering another area in which I may be full of shit. Um, because years ago, I read a book about the origins of rock and roll. Uh, I think it was by Michael Ventura. It's called Hear That Long Snake Moan was the essay. And he argued in that, and I've been repeating it ever since, that Africa has far fewer um, readily available hallucinogens. He did mention Iboga, but talked about how Iboga is very is more difficult to prepare, and the effects are last three days, and so it's not a convenient thing. Anyway, he, his argument was that because Africa has fewer of these substances and the Americas have far more, uh, that thanks the um, the Africans learn to enter altered states of consciousness through music and rhythm, and that's and whereas the North and South Americans just used whatever plants were available, and and their music was very simple because of that because they didn't need to develop these right. complex rhythms. Whereas the Africans, because they were using this to enter into altered states of consciousness, which we then see. You know, coming over into the voodoo traditions and then into New Orleans and, and the whole, you know, the rise of jazz and rock and roll. So his whole argument was that in a way, this complex musical um, tradition that we know of from Africa arose because of the absence of easily, readily available hallucinations. Arose because of the absence. Because right. Because of the absence. It was... It was these these traditions were caused caused by the absence, right? Because if they'd had uh, like psilocybin mushrooms, they would have just taken them and they'd end up with the simple music like the Americans. I don't know. I, I don't know. And, and that assertion doesn't make any sense from all sorts of perspectives. It's, it seems to me. I mean, it seems that you know rhythm and music and and all those things. That's another aspect of of language, and that's another aspect of synesthesia. I mean, the way mm. that synesthesia might have contributed to this. You know, synesthesia often involves seeing sounds. You know, or. Uh, you know, hearing colors, hearing mm-hmm. colors, and that kind of thing. So there is a connection. The knowledge of the plants that are synesthetic may have been lost, but the practice of rhythm, you know, uh, may have continued. I don't, I don't know. You can't really separate. I mean, it's 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 kind of uh, you know. Sometimes I say. In my talks, I say it really is all about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> and if you think about it, really, in terms of, in, from the perspective of biologists, this is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. I mean, sex, that's pretty obvious. You know, that's how we got here, and that's a lot of what biological systems want to do. It's the drive to reproduce on some level. So you can't separate that. Drugs, Again, this goes back to what we were saying. We are drugs. Mm -hmm. We're made out of drugs. We're systems that are, we're engines that run on drugs. You know, so that's intrinsic to biology. Where's the rock and roll come in? The rock and roll is rhythm. And biological systems are oscillatory systems. You know, Mm. they have rhythm. Including plants. Plants respond to sound. Everything that's alive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there's something to this. Everything that's alive. I mean, metabolism itself. Which is, you know, if metabolism ceases, life ceases, right? And, and metabolism is basic, basically expression of uh, biochemical processes through time. That's oscillation. 
I right. see a connection to in what I'm making any sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah a lot of sense. Babbling. <laughs> Both, yeah. yeah. I see a connection (laughs) with your friend's uh, work to what you're saying in two ways. One is the the connection you made earlier between the psychedelic experience and sound. Mm -hmm. So the fact that the book you're talking about says that these two things are interchangeable in some sense for communities seeking and psychedelics stimulate sound and singing. I mean, that's the whole. You know, one of the common things with with ayahuasca is. You know, uh, you take ayahuasca, and if you know, it, 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 it will tell you to sing. Yeah. You know, yeah. Say, oh, I can't sing. I don't. You know, I can't carry a tune in a bucket. You know, <laughs> but all of a sudden, you're singing. It's coming out spontaneously, uh-huh. and you know, you're singing. Didn't even know you could do that, and you're singing in a way that drives the 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 visionary, the visionary process. So this connection between visualization rhythm sound i think is fundamental and i think that's out of that is what language originated from originally well, other, it was almost a musical thing and you mentioned something in the book as well um that relates to what i think chris was just saying and that's that we seem to have this innate desire to alter consciousness and so when we get to an age and have access to psychoactive plants you know, like you're saying, an abundance of them or access or we have a hippie friend or something or we're 16, then then we'll do it through smoking weed or taking mushrooms. But when you're five and six mm. and you don't have access to those things or the ability to interact with them, then you do it by spinning around in a circle or right. hyperventilating mm-hmm. or any of that. So that, right. that lends a little credence to what this person's talking about, that in the absence of these compounds, people You'll will find still another way. find another way yeah. to hit those right. those. And a lot of that may have to do with rhythm, with mm-hmm. inducing yeah. rhythm. I mean, you can imagine a scenario where you're you know, primate, you take these things, and the next thing you know, you're spontaneously vocalizing, which you tend to do. Pick up a stick and start beating on a log. Yeah. That and well, guess what? You know, you just invented music. Next thing you know, just Katy Perry, <laughs> Justin fucking Bieber. Uh, Hey, here's a question out of left field. Uh, can plants get high? Oh, that's interesting that yeah. you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, On the blood of Jewish children, yes. <laughs> well, it's. it turns out, yes, they can. I mean, this came up with Stephen Herod Buhner's yeah. in his talk in that, in that uh, webinar that we did. It turns out this is why plants make these things. It actually has the uh, same effect on plants than that it does on us. I mean, they don't have nerves endogenously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the plant, many of the, and not just psychoactive plants, other kinds of plants too. They modulate the plant's physiology in the same way that they modulate ours. And I mean. Are there cases? It makes sense because, like, we get aspirin from tree bark. Which is which is thins the blood to help it move more easily through the system, and that would make sense to help it move nutrient up the side of the plant. That's yeah. exactly the right. willow tree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or immune stimulants in the things that are immune stimulants in us stimulate uh, you know a kind of immune system in plants. They do have an immune system. It doesn't look like the mammalian immune system. This is why it's important it's to eat seasonally. Thing. Yeah, yeah. Seasonal I, I wonder if plants consume other plants. 
in the sense like you know if you ever grow marijuana outside you have to watch out for the deer right because they'll come and eat all your weed because yeah, yeah. they, they get high well you've it. got your parasitic plants that yeah in some sense consume other yeah plants. and i wonder if they're doing it to get high mm. you know what i mean if they're taking a chemical from another plant to well i don't even know if that's possible it, uh, it's possible yeah it's possible. and because last night we were talking about how thinking Presu- yeah. We sit, we presume we need a brain to think, but plants are obviously thinking. And we're going to take a break while we'll you do your call. Yeah. yeah okay. Then, All right. We're recording again. Okay. I, the question has to do with ayahuasca tourism, and just to frame it to you, you know, there's, you know, there's more than two schools of thought. But just to give it a, a frame of reference for the conversation, there's one camp that says that this is just another wave of Western European white exploitation of indigenous people and indigenous people's medicine and that it's a privileged few that can go and have these transformative experiences and um, uh, but it, it doesn't really ever translate into real meaningful lasting change for communities um, due in part to this level of uh, continued exploitation of the indigenous people that are bearing this uh, mm-hmm. end of the plant um, you know the airfare and the environmental co- you know impact and all of that the other community uh, are, are people that are saying almost the opposite, that, that this is a symbol of, of Westerners really seeking out um, new forms of connection to the transcendent that aren't from these Abrahamic codes that we've inherited, and that if our society, if our culture has any hope of healing itself, more people need to experience these plant medicines because it will kind of open up a, a new... Mm-hmm. channel for empathic consciousness so i was just wondering mm-hmm. where you stand on that well <laughs> i stand uh, it's not either or yeah. I, I think there are uh i think that there are other that this whole phenomenon of ayahuasca tourism uh you know is complex mm-hmm. and i think that we're looking at a tiny slice of of time but in some sense i've always argued that Number one, it was inevitable that something like this would happen. And number two, what we're seeing is, uh, what you're seeing play out is another uh, chapter, if you will, in this ongoing plant-human co-evolution. You know, it's an evolutionary process, actually, and it happens on a time frame that's a lot more stretched out, a lot longer than we're used to thinking. I mean, human beings have had an evolutionary, uh, co-evolutionary relationship to ayahuasca for potentially thousands of years. Mm -hmm. And this is another aspect of it. What we're, what we're, and it's not only ayahuasca, but I think through ayahuasca to the, all of this, you know, I mean, this isn't a scientific notion. It's a personal belief that ayahuasca because the other aspect of it, it's not that it's not all the the third the uh, you know first world going to the third world, mm-hmm. whatever. Ayahuasca itself is has escaped from the Amazon. Yeah, that's true. It's reaching out to people, you know, in all parts of the world. It's escaped to Hawaii. It's escaped. It's being grown all over the world now. Mm-hmm. And I think in part that is a reflection of kind of the desperation. I mean, if you talk about plant intelligence, if you see that as a, as a manifestation of plant intelligence, the fact that ayahuasca has left its ancestral home and on behalf of uh, you know the community of species is migrated outside there to get in touch, to you know reach out to key people and say, 
you know, wake up, you monkeys. This is the kind of you plant know, evangelism there. Really. Plant evangelism on behalf of Gaia, if you if you believe in that concept, which basically I do. And and uh, so there's that aspect to it. It's not that we're doing it all. Remember, you monkeys only think you're running the thing, <laughs> right? That's what ayahuasca tells me. And in fact, it is running it. So I feel that what's happening with all that is is right now at this historical juncture this is just about where it needs to be and that actually ayahuasca is if you want to attribute be anthropomorphic about it it's quite happy with what's going on because it's getting spread around yeah. and that's what plants like to do they like to spread they're genetically uh programmed to spread and propagate so there is that aspect to it as far as as far as the the two things you mentioned, I think there is, well, any time, you know, you get a, uh, a capitalistic first world, much more economically impactful culture interfacing with an indigenous culture, you're going to get, you know, the indigenous culture is at risk. You know, uh, our, our, uh, our culture has this ability to commodify everything. Yeah, if a buck can be made, mm-hmm. a buck will be made, yeah, and there's yeah. that's part of the Western tradition, and it, it's nothing recent. I mean, look yeah. at the Catholic Church; they were selling off indulgences. You know, uh, you know, it, it's all a, you know, it's all a scheme. It's all you know. So the commodification of spirituality has always gone on. Yes, but that doesn't mean it's not genuine spirituality. Right. It mm. is, in fact, there are all these sincere people. <clears throat> who really do want to reach out for meaningful experiences through reconnecting with indigenous traditions. And the reason they're doing that is because they're not finding it in the West anymore. You know, it's generally being, you know, the recognition is becoming wider and wider that religions, established religions, are not about spiritual experience. They're terrified of spirit, genuine spiritual experience. They're, about They're just political boys. institutions that have become bludgeons to keep people in line, to keep them from asking too many embarrassing questions and to, you know, behave, to behave. They're, they're not religious institutions or spiritual institutions. They're political institutions. I have a friend. People crave genuine connection with the transcendent with the divine if you will with the you know with a mystery with with what rudolf Otto calls the mysterium tremendum religions established religions don't have that i mean if they had it once that as soon as they get that they they go to a great extent to box it off and make sure that nobody gets a genuine spiritual experience that's not interpreted through the priests and so on. Can I uh, read a passage from your book, the uh, the Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss, that relates to this? It's, sure. it's something I highlighted. Please. Uh, reality is a hallucin. Uh, sorry, reality is a hallucination generated by the brain to help us make sense of our being. Reality is a hallucination generated by the brain. It's what I was saying earlier about uh, eyesight. Vision is generated by the brain, although we attribute it to our eyes and we say it's out there. Right. It's made of fragments of memory, associations, ideas, people you remember, dreams you've had, things you've read and seen, all of which is somehow blended and extruded into something resembling a coherent conscious narrative, the hallucination that we call experience. 
I love that blended and extruded. <laughs> That's very nicely put. Uh, DMT poet in there somewhere. Oh yeah. <laughs> DMT rips back that curtain to show the raw data before it has been processed mm-hmm. and massaged. There is no comforting fiction of coherent consciousness. One confronts the mindless hammering of frenzied neurochemistry. Yeah, that was, was really well put. The mindless hammering of frenzied neurochemistry. <laughs> Beautifully done. That was good. I was. Yeah. I must have been. I must have been inspired when I read it. But, but yeah, there was a muse in the room. Uh, I think. Uh, I think that's true. I think that's one of the values of psychedelics. Is they, they do, uh, you know, strip away this this, uh, you know, this finished massage product that makes such such sense and that we experience as as experience as ongoing in the moment coherent existence where we feel localized and you know none of that's real yeah that's a fiction that we you know we manufacture we're the producers directors and stars of our own movie you know we manufacture the movie and then we proceed to live in it and it's it's you know, or another way to view it is our brain, you know, constructs a model of reality. We live inside that model. Physics tells us that external reality doesn't look like this at all. It's, you know, blooming, buzzing, quantum processes and all that. But we, we can't handle that. So we construct a model of reality. That's the reality that we inhabit. Orwell and, says we, we wear a mask and our face grows to fit it. Yeah, so he, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, essentially that, and and we, you know, if because we couldn't handle reality in its raw form, that's why psychedelics can be so disorienting and confusing because they do, until you learn to deal with it, they do rip away this, this, uh, you know, this, this model you've created. You get. You're like the guy with the many spheres, the the famous woodcut. He crawls through all the cosmic spheres, and he gets to look outside of all that. Mm-hmm. And, oh, my God, you know, what's happening? Uh, I forget the Albert Durer or somebody's mm. woodcut. Uh, yeah. You know, do you understand what I'm saying? So it's... Uh, yeah, so many of our stories involve that, whether you have to go down a rabbit hole or be taken up by a tornado or be taken into right. the presence of God. It involves this... All of that involves, exactly, the disruption of our comfortable reality that we've created for ourselves. And, you know, another analogy that I, and and that's what psychedelics do, that's a lot of their value. Another analogy I like to use sometimes is you get to, you know, you think reality is put together a certain way and you get to turn it over and look at the circuit board. Mm. You know, oh, you know, the circuit board is... Not pretty, like the the thing you're looking at, but hey, this is how it's wired. Mm. You know, you get to see how it's wired. Under the hood, huh? Under the hood. You get to look under the hood. Yeah. Uh, can I do another bullshit check with you? Uh, sure. It's all my, my bullshit, not yours. You know, <laughs> I love two segments. We're going to have reading poetry to atheists segment from here forward. And, and your host checks shit. Is, yeah. yeah, is your host full of shit. Uh, another thing I often say to people is that every society that's ever had access to psychedelics has seen them as the greatest gift of the gods, except us. And we see them as pun- you know more punishable than second degree murder. I know right. the second part is true uh, right. with minimum mandatory sentencing laws, but is it true that, as far as you know, 
every society that's had access to to these substances has seen them as a great gift and not demonized them. I know datura would be a, a separate kind of right. category, but when we're talking about hallucinogens and uh, like coca, for example, which again isn't a hallucinogen, but you know we've demonized it, and in the indigenous culture, the, it's a, a wonderful gift. Um, is that true, or am I overgeneralizing? Well, do you no, think I, I, I think, I mean, I'd have to think about it to think of a society other than ours that's demonized these things. Uh, but in general, they don't demonize them. I mean, they're closer to nature to begin with. I think the demonization of uh, psychedelics owes a lot to this Judeo-Christian tradition yeah. and the demonization... And that's related to the demonization of everything related to biology. You know, what do they fear most? Sex, drugs, rock and, and rock roll. and roll. <laughs> We're right? back to that. Because right. sex, drugs, and rock and roll happen to be the central mysteries of life. And there's a class and, and they issue. Right. They devalue biology. They keep saying, well, you know, your reward is in the, in the next world. You yeah. shouldn't value nature. Nature is here to serve you. But right. And that's that's the big problem is that we've got this Western notion that nature is just, you know, here to submit to us as a not as a goddess to you know to honor, but as just a source of raw materials to turn into whatever we want to turn into. And again, the commodification of uh, of nature. Well, yeah. I was just going to say, the industrial that, economies, you know. there's a class issue as well, because when you bring in the needs of industrial economies, and not only do you have to sever a relationship to nature in order to co-opt it for profit, but then the drugs you allow into the society are really only ones that benefit the needs of industrialism. So it's nicotine, caffeine, Things alcohol, that make boring right. work right. tolerable. Right. And yeah. Then, yeah, yeah, and then you anesthetize it during the weekend, and then right. the caffeine and nicotine are to help you do the meaningless help task you. during the week. Exactly. Fuck yeah, man. And, and sugar. That even, Don't forget that sugar. That very much is true. Yeah. That even extends to what I call the, the biomedical industrial complex and the whole pharmaceutical approach, you know. I mean, medicine these days and especially psychiatry is a complete joke mm -hmm. because not only does it not cure people it relies on these drugs that come out of pharmaceutical laboratories and you know they're ineffective i mean there's plenty of study to show that ssris are barely more effective than placebo, placebo for yeah. most people and yet that is what is prescribed these things are done for the convenience of doctors and companies and medical establishments, not patients. You patients are practically an afterthought. Here. We were talking about the early days of LSD earlier, and, and you mentioned how uh, clinicians could write to Sandoz and get yeah. LSD ampules sent to them. Right. And what I love about that time, and, and, and a lot of people don't know, young people don't know, is that in the what the first 15 20 years that LSD was available it was marketed as a psychotomimetic mm -hmm. so it was marketed to clinicians psychiatrists and other doctors psychologists 
as something that they would take so that they could experience they could psychosis. See what it was like. They could go native. Yes, right. exactly. So they that could they could experience like it. Schizophrenic or and treat their patients right, with right. more empathy. I mean, that is such a rare and beautiful impulse, you know, to find in the medical tradition. I mean, I know most, I admire most physicians. My wife's a psychiatrist, but she's actually a shaman who happened to get a degree in psychiatry right. um, because that's her right. natural interest. Right. And I, I hope you'll meet her later because it's amazing. We walk around. She grew up in Africa. But we'll be walking in, like, B.C. in the woods. And she'll say, oh, look at that. That's good. That'll provoke abortions. And this thing here, that's really good for, uh, you know, fighting tooth decay. It's good for the gums. And she's mm-hmm. never seen these plants before. Mm-hmm. And she may be full of shit. I don't know. But <laughs> they they look familiar. They look the, familiar enough that he should make. Right. Well, that's, yeah, that's... Uh, that's exactly right. She'll probably be the first to agree with me that psychiatry is ineffective as it's practiced yeah. now. It's it's you know it's not about curing patients. It's right. about it's about money. making them manageable and well, right. you know, so they're not right. a bother to their caregivers, chemical lobotomy, and so on. They're expected to stay on these drugs forever, and that yeah. serves the pharmaceutical companies' purposes quite nicely. Yeah. So the whole thing. And I think as as psychedelics get more reintegrated into medicine as is happening, that's why these clinical studies that like Hefter's doing are really subversive activities because we're, that's not our purpose, but what's coming out is here are medicines that two or three exposures under the right circumstances will cure your depression, cure your PTSD, not that you have to take psychedelics every day for the rest of your life which is no. what the pharmaceutical companies want so right. they're very dangerous in that sense and the ibogaine and ayahuasca treatments for uh, opiate addiction are extremely effective as well apparently. they're also effective you know, there's, there's, there's no business model there for big yeah. pharma so they're right you know there is a business model i think there is a business model and the business model is that these things always have to be taken in a therapeutic context, whether right. it's shamanism mm-hmm. or psychiatry set set. or some combination of those things. But so the business model is, yes, yeah, set and setting, modulate the set and setting. The business model is set up places where people can go and have these experiences in a safe environment, either to treat something specific that is a problem for them, like PTSD or depression or whatever, um, or simply for spiritual purposes, for the, or exploration of consciousness. Yeah, purposes. it's a small scale business model. You well, but something. many of them. Yeah, you know, yeah, the exactly. It's decentralized. Be, you should be able to go to your local psychedelic retreat center. Yeah, you know, have a menu. Okay, here's what you can take: mushrooms, LSD. Right. You know, all legal, all under the supervision of experienced therapists. Right. And just have the experience. They'll be like spas, you know? Yeah. Uh, in fact, they may provide many of the same services. Sure. Float tanks are in an obvious. In addition yeah. to that, yes, we yeah. have, you know, these, uh, these substances. I think that psychiatry, uh, you know, 10 years down the line is going to look a lot like shamanism. You know, because yeah. shamanism, uh, psychiatry is borrowing from these indigenous traditions you know, you you could approach the the resolution of a you know of of a mental illness or a mental problem through talk, and that's useful. Or you can do it a shamanic way, and it may not involve talking your problems through. It may, but it may 
you know, I mean, the shaman through the songs and whatever can have insight into your condition and, and uh, you know, the song itself is the healing. And also it's be within very the interesting to see what happens to all this as psychedelics yeah. do come into medicine. And it's, it's, we were talking about this last night, I don't remember the context exactly, but there's this, oh, we're talking about music and how, it, you know, we're not agreeing, but I was making the argument that it seems like we're at the end of music because now it's all, you know, they're playing Nirvana on the station of new music, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and it's all classic rock and everything that, you know, people are wearing their retro eyeglasses and it's, you know, yeah. especially in Portland, everybody's dressing like it's 1947 or yeah, something yeah. with the beards <laughs> and all. We um, all want to be in a Primus video. But there does seem to be a closing of the hoop to, to use Native American terminology. There's this, this well, cycle. We're rediscovering, uh, we're rediscovering, on some level, yeah, music these days seems to be a lot of schlock and it's the diffusion but <coughs> we're we're kind of rediscovering ancient music yeah indigenous music this world music, music back to peter gabriel music, yeah because mm-hmm. they fit well into altered states that's how they yeah. were that's how they were developed in the first place they're designed to induce altered states i was going to make an observation based on the two things we've been talking about one was the thing you just said about lsd being this mimetic of psychosis and to the earlier conversation we were having about you know fusing the hemispheres by by combining analysis and experience and how science blinds itself by not compensating for the the, the direct experience when we're talking about anthropology and young um there's been a lot of folks that have talked about um, this kind of Ericksonian approach to religion, and I want to see you get your take on it with, in, in, with regard to entheogenic plants, and that what, what many of these substances do is, mi- is mimic the death event, right? And so much of our religious psychosis, especially in Abrahamic religion, has to do with our denial and fear of death. And yeah. a lot of the problems in the world come from humanity's uh, inability to deal with this, especially in the West. And what these plants do is help reconcile you with that a little bit by giving you like a trial run by taking you you get sick you go down you fall into the pit you go into the abyss and you emerge on the ego death right yeah Yeah. right it even involves the physical illness and purging part and so it's kind of a trial run a a dress rehearsal for your the the flashing of your whole life in front of you i mean it gives you every one of those things and not in every experience and and this is why psychedelics you know, are coming uh, first are coming into medicine, into medical practice through the use in these hospice situations mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because it's essentially an antidote. Medicine is great if it comes to healing. Medicine is very, actually, it, it's not. It does a shitty job <laughs> healing. But but when you it break comes an to arm death, yeah. it's completely incompetent. You know, it's in yeah. total denial because doctors. Don't want to admit that. You know, oh, the not story you told about patients. your father's death in the book was heart wrenching. Yeah, yeah I actually, unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, yeah. good God, let the man die. He had know? a pa- and, uh, oh. and he had a pacemaker that yeah. they wouldn't turn off because it was owned by the corporation who had the password. And, and yeah, yeah, unbelievable. The doctor with the password who could authorize to turn my father's pacemaker off yeah. was off on a golf junket in Florida and was out of touch. So he experienced, you know, the torture of the damned for 48 hours that he didn't need to. Yeah. You know, finally, somehow, they did get it turned off before the doctor came back, and and then, and then as it turned out, he didn't die. Wow. <laughs> you know, it was, but he, he, 
he died of he died shortly after that you know but yeah it's it's nuts i mean so the idea of a beautiful death which i think uh indigenous peoples people who use these plants are more uh you know that's not a strange note notion for them a beautiful we're all gonna die nobody gets out alive uh, of this everybody goes through the portal eventually i want when I, my time comes i want my family my loved ones around i want to be in no pain or little pain if i can and have a beautiful death that's what psychedelics can teach medicine how to organize a beautiful death did you get that tincture of hemlock thing. that you mentioned in the book what you, you said in the book i made a mental note to remember to secure myself the tincture of hemlock so it's there when the time comes. I haven't gotten around. To oh, that. come on. You better get on that. Get As on I that. get older, I better get that together. Yeah. <laughs> just keep that in the, in the medicine cabinet. Yes. You know, I won't tell the story. I've told Chris's the story. listeners will send you in a couple. Yeah, some teachers. Yeah. Um, I, uh, by the way, is hemlock, is that actually a good way to go? It's a good way to go. Is it? Okay, yeah. good yeah. to know. Um, I had the tricky an experience. part is the dose, right? Yeah. And that's... That's I mean, it's like a, you can't exactly experiment with the dose. Well, you, you can't overdose. <laughs> you get the one right? shot. You're not worrying about overdosing. <laughs> right. So. You're not worried about overdosing. Chug a lug that. be sure that you overdose. Yeah. But if you don't overdose, then it could be quite uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, and, you know so I don't know. We, we, I'm sure that it's been figured out. It's funny. You know, we're talking about death and how bad we are at facing death. And here we are in the country that, you know, executes more prisoners than anyone except, I guess, China and Saudi Arabia. Yeah. And yet they fuck that up, too. Like, there's all this stuff going on now where they can't get those chemicals and there's all this confusion. Like, we got to kill these guys. We don't know how to do it. Right. How can America not know how to kill people? Yeah, when we start yeah, sucking at that. me. It like, totally fire, you know, yeah, you know, the put them out in a field and hit them with a drone. You think, you know? you'd think they'd be able to get this. Yeah, down, it's incredible. I guess, yeah, I guess there's issues of approval or so on. We could use something like, you know, saxitoxin, which is like a channel blocker. You know, active at some. It's it's the one that they contrive to put on the tip of a an umbrella. You know, oh, yeah, the yeah, yeah, thing, yeah. And you sort of casually walk by the guy at the bus stop and scratch him. Yeah. And by the, the time you've gotten twenty feet away, he's collapsed on the on the ground and is dying. Well, what about saxitoxin? I see a new consulting gig for you here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a twist in your career you might not have anticipated. Yeah. I'm not sure I I'm not sure I want to go there. Car no money in healing anybody. You want to take a few fools out though. Yeah. Plenty of cash for you. I uh, I won't tell the story here because I've told it elsewhere but I was um, on top of one of the temples in Tikal in Guatemala tripping it was a full moon night my girlfriend and I had taken some LSD and timed it so it would peak when the when the sun was setting and the moon rose over the jungle this amazing thing and I got stung by a scorpion (laughs) and the, the Guatemalan guard said they were fatal so for the next four hours I thought I was dying and I was tripping in, in Tikal, wow. yeah. So when you're talking about like you know hallucinogens and having a beautiful death and all that, I, I went through this whole experience that was really quite interesting. And the fact that I was tripping gave me that perspective, that sort of you know larger than my own ego perspective, um, that uh, you know made it probably the premier experience in my life. So that must have been really 
very good for you. I it mean, was fantastic. Like, yeah. I you mean, know the now, thing now you talk you know about not actually giving asked a fuck? to be injected with LSD when he was on his death. Yeah. He knew yeah. that that would give him that perspective. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's something, you know, I feel very fortunate to have sort of gone through those phases. That I think Kubler-Ross's, you know, five stages of grief are applicable to everything. The death of a relationship, you know, yeah. losing your yeah. job, whatever. Yeah. I yeah. mean, you, we, though, it seems those five... Uh, Dabda, what were they? Um, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, mm-hmm. right? It's like every mm-hmm. those, and we get stuck on them. And some people die in the bargaining stage, you know, or whatever. Um, but if we can sort of get the earlier in life we can get to acceptance and just stay there, yeah. then the rest is gravy. Then you've you've already died. Peace. Then we're you have peace. peace. Right. That's why I think all young men should shave their heads. Then you're not worried about getting bald. You've seen yourself, Paul. Right? <laughs> Shave your head. Like, okay, it's no big Too deal. I've heard me. you joke before, or even seriously say your one of your greatest attributes is your ability to not give a fuck. And did, did you right. find that that started or accelerated after this experience? Um, I think, honestly, I think that's just a way of articulating one of the central lessons I learned from a lot of use of psychedelics yeah, yeah. as a young man, is that the things you think are important aren't. Right, because as as you put it so beautifully in the book, it, it, psychedelics lead us to a place much larger. They're very personal, which mm-hmm. is why they subvert the religious and all that, because it puts us in a direct relationship. We're in charge, not the beastly little priestlies. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's also like we're here to hear the music, and the music continues whether we're here or not. And like, the more we get hung up on ourselves, the less. Of the music we actually hear, yeah. you know. Yeah. So, In, yeah. Interesting anecdote, uh, interesting story about LSD and, and and approaching death and all that. Uh, someone related to me. You know, we we it's commonly said that if you have an ac- if you're dying, if you have an accident or something, your whole life flashes in front of your eyes, yeah. and nobody really knows because nobody lives to tell the tale, right? But. A friend of mine told a story once about he and a bunch of people were taking LSD on a rooftop in New York, right, on the top of some high building in New York, and they're all walking around and wandering around and and so on, and he, he, uh, he stepped over the edge. And in his experience, he stepped over the edge and, and thought that he, you know, jumped off the building and... You know, his whole life flashed in front of him, and then he fell on the on the floor three feet below him, which was you know he'd stepped off something on the roof, and he was not well, obviously killed. Yeah. <laughs> but it did flash before. But his whole life flashed in front of him. Right. In the time it, was, it, it took was a to fall that experience. three feet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then wake up and say, "Oh damn! I, wow. <laughs> I thought it was gonna." It actually I leads me, the farm, you know. <laughs> it leads me into a question I have. Is that all right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, one of the things. Uh, let me. How do you even frame this? You know, I, I really appreciated both your and your brother's work um, with the I Ching and. Uh, we talked a little bit about this the other night, and this this idea that um, within experience, that that any moment is not just some linear line of causal events, but that there's and this borrows from Jung's understanding too, but that right. moments are synchronicities um, of causal chains going a bunch of different directions, and they are, they converge on that given moment to give that moment its particular character, and to study the character of that moment is as important 
and sometimes more important than looking at some sequence of events that led to it or from it. And uh, there's an author that I, uh, a novelist that I really love named Tom Spanbauer, and he talks a lot about writing about those moments in your life where after that moment everything was different. And one of the things I appreciate about the book is there's a lot of those moments in there, right? There's, it yeah. seems like on almost every page there's a moment where after that moment everything was different for you or everything was different for your brother. And um, I just wonder, you know, if, if the, the La Carrera moment, if that, how that moment or others from the book still stay with you. Oh, hell yes. Yeah. You know, I mean, partly I write about those moments because those are the moments one remembers. Yeah, yeah. Right? And if you have a con, if you have a, a compromised, not a very good memory, which I don't. I mean, I've forgotten so much. But you remember significant moments. You remember the first girl you kissed, the first time you got laid, the first time you took LSD. I mean, these kinds of things do stand out in your mind, yeah. right? And in terms of La Chirera, yeah, I think of our Terry and my lives as uh, you know, post La Chirera and pre La Chirera, yeah. in a sense. I mean, that was a huge pivot point for us and we live and that happened very early in our life, right? I was only 20, Terry was 24. Uh, you know, and so almost everything that's happened in our lives since La Chirera has been lived out in the shadow of La Chirera and, that, and La Chirera still resonates down the time frame and I'm sure right up to our death. I mean, we're known for La Chirera, both to ourselves and to the world. How do the lessons you learn from that still affect your work and stuff today, do you think? Well, the last, well, you know, I mean, I have rejected in some ways most of the theoretical underpinnings, most of the mm -hmm. ideas that were downloaded to us at La Chirera, yeah, with some exceptions, maybe the, the time wave, but even the time wave is it, it is what it is, but it's not what we thought it was. Right. You know, uh, so in part, you know, I mean, I mean, that's a big difference between Terrence and me in a certain sense. You could say that Terrence, you know, never recovered, and I did in mm. a certain way because I came back from my schizophrenic break of a couple of weeks and I was mostly concerned to get my feet on the ground and get back into reality, what we jokingly call reality. And my strategy to that was to study science and study some fairly hard, uh, you know, hard science, hard hands-on thing as a way of reconstructing my... Uh, I don't know what, that my standing as a good citizen in the world of consensus reality. <laughs> yeah. And Terence's reaction was, you know, science will never explain this. And so we need to reject science. And, and, and he did. And, and I, was, I was telling him, I, I was saying, we, you can't say that because we're not scientists. We may have thought we were, but we're not scientists. We have to do science first before we 
can start rejecting it based on its limitations. We have to know what its limitations yeah. are. We don't know those limitations. It's it's like wanting to be a free jazz musician without ever learning to play the right, instrument. Right, exactly. Yeah. So I say you're not you may be free to reject science, but I'm not. That's something you know? honestly and that, so that was the yeah. kind of the bifurcation of our careers in some ways. Terry became the the philosopher and the raconteur and the and the guy who was out there promulgating these completely bizarre ideas, like the time wave, uh, you know, and and that was his thing. He was he was he was uh, defending that, and I was became much more uh, almost reductionist in reaction to that. That's why I went back to Peru in 1981 as a graduate student. For me, it was almost a a self-revalidation uh, proving to myself that I can go to the Amazon and I can do scientific work and I don't have to go crazy. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I, I think now it's I, only... Now I, I have done that, you know, and I mean, I'm, I'm totally integrated into South America, but I don't go crazy when I go down there. I'm more crazy here, you know. <laughs> it's only reductionist, I think, you know, when seen against the context of, of Terry's career or... Yes, uh, yeah, I think is. what I was going to say earlier is I really admire you in the same way that I admire um, our mutual friend Stanley Krippner or Andy Weil, because these are all people who who visited that world and said, okay, what I need to do is have a foot in that world and a foot in this other world and do science so that I can help people see that that's not a bunch of crazy bullshit, that that is as real as anything else, right? and I can explain it to them in a language they'll understand, as opposed to the Timothy Leary approach or, to some extent, Terry's approach, which is, fuck no, I'm going to go into that world and just call from there, and right. hey, you guys, come join me. Yeah. We couldn't have put it better. That's exactly right. That's yeah. exactly right. I'm, I have to have both feet in that world so I can talk to people who are not in that world. Which is the shamanic journey, yeah. right? It's you're yeah. moving between worlds so that you can bring the benefits of that other world that these people aren't able to access directly necessarily. Right. You can bring those back to this world and help them with it. Yeah, it's a, exactly. it's a beautiful and thing to do with your life. Science has a lot to contribute. It has a, it's the most powerful method that ever the mind of man has devised to ask questions of nature and get answers back that you can sort of test and more or less verify. That said, though, you have to always be cognizant of the limitations of science, and that's what science as, a, as an institution isn't. They're too damn arrogant and full of themselves they need right. to be humble right i suggest doctor you smoke this pipe and this will bring the necessary humility exactly. to give you perspective on it the balance so yeah. do you think that would be a good idea i mean i have a, uh, a colleague who works at the hong kong polytechnic uh, institute and he i don't want to name i want to name him but i don't want to name him because of the next thing i'm going to say he wants to bring ceos to a camp at burning man and give them all lsd and to bring Heads of state on ayahuasca retreats and stuff. This is. His. I think this is a great idea. Yeah. I, I would not. I mean, Burning Man is a venue. <laughs> I'm not sure that would yeah. be but, right. but a yeah. retreat, yeah. an area where they're you know in a. This is fits very much with, with kind of what I'm, 
kind of working on in South America with this uh, Wilcatica, this place I'm having the, the, uh, these conferences. It's an ideal venue, and I do think that if we're going to affect this change of consciousness globally, sad truth is we have to influence really influential people. That means wealthy people, heads of state and, and corporations and all that, because they do run the world, so we've got to change them before we can change everyone else or, you know, it won't do any good. Is there a place, uh, let's wrap this up, I know, you know, you're hungry, we've taken a lot of your time, is there a place people can can get in touch with you or, or find out more about the retreat as it develops? Yeah, well, the retreat is a work in progress, but uh, you can always uh, email me at the Hefter Institute and, uh, uh, you know, hefter.org, H-E-F-F-T-E-R, Org. And if you want to see what the Hefter's up to, you can go there and look at the website. And right. we've got a lot of research going on. Now, right. we're pretty, pretty, uh, you know, invested in the science. So, you know, but but people can reach me through there. Great, great. Um, I was going to ask you to just read a, a short passage from your book as we wrap up. Is that all right with you? Well, it depends on the passage. <laughs> you wrote it. It's got to be acceptable, right? Okay. <clears throat> the psychedelic revelation is the exact opposite of the fundamentalist apocalyptic view that we should long for release from this veil of tears and ascend into some anticipated post-historical eternity which our religious authorities tell us is waiting for us following death. What psychedelics teach us is that we are already in paradise as manifested in earthly life. Having learned that lesson, we then must assume the responsibility of protecting nature, the only paradise we are certain will ever know. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing this. Totally thank you agree. so much. Well, I wrote it, so of course I agree with it. <laughs> but I do. I think that's one of the main lessons that psychedelics teaches us is this, uh, you know, this is what, is, as ayahuasca moves into the, onto the global stage, this is what it's desperately trying to get us to, to realize, and, uh, which is, I think, one reason why people who go down there or have it here, but they come away with this really renewed consciousness about nature and the way that everything is interconnected and the way that we're part of that. You know? There was a strand of that here. I know we're wrapping up, but the American transcendentalists really did figure that out. Thoreau, yeah. uh, Emerson, you know, Emerson, and to yeah. a lesser extent... Uh, they had uh, the right idea. Yeah, Whitman, or yeah. Whitman to a greater extent, oh. Emerson, <coughs> Lesser, uh, but uh, the industrialists went out, right? But those transcendentalists right. they met had God the right in idea. the natural world when they got And they there. weren't necessarily Christians or no. religion. They were... If they were religious, it was almost like their transcendentalism was a kind of kind of pantheism, yeah, in some ways, which is kind of where I'm at. And I think anybody with psychedelic experiences kind of you know moved in that direction. Everything is sacred. Everything is alive. Yeah. Everything is intelligent. Even even the electron, you know, from the smallest to the highest level of organization. So anyway. Yeah. All right. Thank you. All right. Awesome. Thank you. Pat, Thank you. Very lively power conversation. Bottom. Yeah. <laughs> he said, "Baby, what's the big deal?" 
Smoke alarms will dance into the ground. 